0: It's that time again, WOTR is on the air. It's two and one half hours of classic old-time radio. I'm your host, John Richardson, so sit back, relax, and enjoy old-time radio as it was meant to be. Welcome to WOTR, your old-time radio station on the Internet. Today we look at Halloween. This holiday always brought spooky and scary shows to our radio dials, and this time is no exception. Our Miss Brooks was a hit on radio from the very outset. Within eight months of its launch as a regular series, the show landed several honors, including one for Eve Arden, who played Miss Connie Brooks, the English teacher at Madison High School. The radio series lasted until 1957, actually lasted longer than the television version did. From October 31st, 1955, and the CBS radio network, it's Eve Arden in The Halloween Party on Our Miss Brooks.
1: Our Miss Brooks, starring Eve Arden. (laughs) It's time once again for another comedy episode of Our Miss Brooks, written by Al Lewis. Well, many of us find it extremely difficult to get up early every morning, but our Miss Brooks, who teaches English at Madison High School, has been doing it for years.
2: Yes, and I've learned one thing about early rising that's helped me immeasurably. Once I jump out of bed, close the window, and do my setting-up exercises, there's only one more thing I want to do, and that's to get right back in bed again. (laughs)
3: Last
2: Friday morning, though, I was up and almost dressed by the time my landlady knocked on the door. Time to get up, Connie. I am up, Mrs. Davis. Come on in. I'm trying to get to school early so I can chat with Mr. Boynton for a few minutes before our first class. Is Mr. Boynton still as unapproachable as ever, Connie? I guess so, Mrs. Davis. But you know something? During this past week, I've gotten closer to him than ever before. Really, dear? How did you do that? I've been wearing my sneakers to school. (laughs) I hope I've got time for breakfast before Walter Denton comes to pick me up. There's something he wants to talk to me about before school starts. Well, he can
4: talk to you at breakfast, Connie. My goodness, you've got to keep your strength up some way. We both know you don't get enough sleep. Well, I didn't last night. Minerva slept in here with me, and she was very restless. I don't know what's the matter with that cat lately. Between you and me, Connie,
2: I think she's got something. Between you and me, I think she's got several.
3: (laughs) Maybe it's
4: a mistake to let her get so friendly with the collie next door. They play together all the time,
2: you know. Oh, so that's the source. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Minerva had me up half the night with her pounding. That's just her tail beating on the floor while she's hunting. Oh, I don't mind her tail thumping so much, but every time she catches something with one paw, she applauds with the other three.
3: (laughs) Suppose
2: we join Minerva in the
4: breakfast milk. I've just given her some milk.
2: Fine, I'll have a saucer full, too. Well, sit right
4: down, dear. I'll boil you a couple of eggs. Just one egg will be plenty, Mrs. Davis. Well, I...
2: Oh, Walter... That must be Walter Denton. Now. Just six eggs will be plenty, Mrs. Davis. The door isn't locked. Come in, Walter. Ah, oh, hi, Miss Brooks, Mrs. Davis. Hello, Walter. How do you want your eggs, Walter?
4: Quickly, please. <laughs>
5: breakfast yet? Oh, sure, but it's 7.30 almost, and we eat an awful early breakfast at my place. How early?
2: Quarter to seven.
3: <laughs> I don't know
2: how you're still standing up. I'll rip up an omelet for all of us. Miss Brooks, I'd like
5: to ask you about something. What's that, Walter? Well, as you know, Halloween is usually celebrated tomorrow night, Saturday, but Herod Conklin's going up to her folks' bungalow at Crystal Lake for the weekend, so we wondered if it would be all right with you if we celebrated the holiday
2: tonight. why come to me? Shouldn't you contact the Goblins Union?
5: <laughs> we wanted to sort of have a little party.
2: You know, Harriet, my pal
5: Stretch Snodgrass and I, and uh, we were planning on inviting you, too. Oh? Uh, where
2: were you planning on holding this party, Walter? At your place. <laughs> How nice of you to invite me along. <laughs> But I'm afraid we couldn't have any Halloween parties here, Walter. After all, I don't own this cottage. I just rent a room for Mrs. Davis. Oh, we've already got her permission. She's going to the movies tonight. Harriet asked her on the phone yesterday. It's just up to you, Miss Brooks. Well, I'm afraid I'm not interested in Halloween parties, Walter. I've got quite a bit of work to catch up on, and tonight looks like an ideal time to do it. Sorry, but you'll have to hold your party someplace else. Gee, Miss Brooks, Harriet and Stretch will be awfully disappointed. And so will Mr. Boynton. Mr. Boynton?
5: Yeah. I was talking to him yesterday, and he was saying what swell fun he always thought Halloween was when he was a kid. And then we invited him to the party, too, and he accepted. And now there's no place to have the party. What's wrong with having the party right here?
1: Hello, principal's office. Osgood Conklin himself speaking.
6: Hello, Osgood. It's me, Martha.
1: We've been married 18 years, woman. I know your name. <laughs>
6: Jeez, <dear. laughs> Do try not to be so testy. Do you realize that you left home this morning without even saying goodbye?
1: Well, that's easily remedied. Goodbye.
6: Goodbye. <laughs> He said he wanted to see you before we go to Crystal Lake tomorrow.
1: I am well aware of that fact. I've had plenty of time to think about it during the sleepless hours I spent listening to your dog thumping his tail at the foot of our bed all night.
6: But Prince was so lonesome, dear. After all, we've got each other. He's all alone.
1: Well, he wasn't alone last night. <laughs> I never heard such scratching in all my born days. What's he got, anyway?
6: Well, he can't Pop have anything, dear. You know he doesn't play with other dogs. In fact, he would have died of loneliness last week if I hadn't taken him over to Mrs. Davis's to play with her cat, Minerva.
3: Well,
1: you've got to keep him away from me. My blood pressure is higher than it's been in years. To make my morning complete, when I bent down to tie my shoelaces, my glasses fell off.
6: Did they break?
1: Not until I straightened up and stepped on them.
6: (laughs) in. Crystal cake, that will make a new man of you. Now go down to the doctor's and get a nice sedative to take with you.
1: Very well, Martha. It's a good thing I have an extra pair of glasses with me or I couldn't find my way to the door.
6: Now whatever you do, Oscar, don't break gold.
1: Thank you, my dear. I think that's sterling advice. <laughs> Goodbye. It's uh, later than I thought. Huh? Better hurry.
2: Well, you see, Walter, if we all meet in the cafeteria at lunchtime, we can make the plans for... Ooh, good.
3: <laughs>
1: Miss Brooks, I presume?
2: Oh, I'm terribly sorry, Mr. Conklin. I didn't see you coming. Oh, dear, I seem to have broken your glasses. Do you have another pair?
1: No, Miss Brooks, I haven't.
3: <laughs>
1: but perhaps I could get you a long stick and let you smash the windows in my
3: office!
5: You seem to be in quite a hurry, Mr. Conklin. Could I maybe take you somewhere?
1: Who is speaking?
5: It's me, Walter Denton, your daughter Harriet's dream boat.
1: My daughter Harriet's... I'll talk to you later, Miss Brooks. Denton, pick up that shattered glass.
5: Yes, sir. Oh, well, what should I do with it, Mr. Conklin? Eat it, you lame brain son! <laughs> Mr. Conklin's sure in a bad mood today. He looks pretty purple, doesn't he? Even for him. He <laughs> certainly is excitable.
2: Hi,
6: Walter. Oh, hello, Miss Brooks. Hi. Hello,
5: Harriet. Did you run into
2: Daddy yet this morning? It's in the hands of the insurance company now. <laughs> His temper's pretty miserable today. Yes, I know. Poor Daddy. has been depressed all week long. I don't know what it is. We all try to please him. What he needs is some recreation and diversion. Say, I have an idea. What is it, Miss Brooks? Well, instead of my place tonight, why don't we have our Halloween party at your house, Harriet? That way we could surprise your father and cheer him up a little bit. (laughs) Wonderful. Miss Brooks, you've done it again. as I was to get back into Mr. Conklin's good graces, I determined to make the Halloween party Friday night a roaring success. I had asked the kids to meet me in the school cafeteria at lunchtime, and the first one to show up was Madison's star athlete Stretch Snodgrass. Although a whiz on the football field, Stretch's outstanding scholastic achievement occurred during a test last week when he spelled his name correctly. (laughs) coffee when he approached my table. Here I am, Miss Brooks. Mind if I sit down? Not at all, Stretch, but wouldn't you like to bring some food over before we discuss the party?
1: Oh, no, ma'am. I already ate. Please, Stretch. (laughs) I've already eaten. Oh, good. Then we can get right down to
3: business. (laughs) Walter
1: said he thought we all had a masquerade or something tonight.
2: That's a fine idea, Stretch. You could come as a student.
1: I got my outfit all set, Miss Brooks. I got some chaps home and spurs and, and two six-shooters that shoot real blanks. I'm coming as Hopalong Cassidy. That is, if nobody minds. Why should anybody mind, unless Roy Rogers shows up? What are you going to masquerade as, Miss Brooks?
2: Oh, I haven't made up my mind yet, Stretch. Of course, every good Halloween party should have a witch. Yes, I might come as a witch.
1: Perfect. Perfect. <laughs>
2: sound so enthusiastic it's pretty short notice to get a costume made and i may well, not why go to all that trouble
1: why don't you just wear what you got on big
2: as he is i'll have to slug him now look stretch I... miss brooks stretch well things are
5: sure shaping up look at these small noise makers i bought this morning
1: when did you find time to get all this junk walter i sneaked out of one of my morning classes walter you didn't
2: well
5: it was important miss brooks Besides, there's no harm done. Nobody even noticed I was gone. That's what I like, a nice,
2: observant teacher.
5: Oh, it wasn't the teacher's fault. You were facing the blackboard at the time. (laughs)
3: Look
5: at this horn. It's got a siren in the mouthpiece. Listen.
3: (coughs)
2: Please, Walter, you're in the cafeteria. So what? One more blast like that, and the beef stew will pull over to the right. (laughs) Tell me, how are you going to the masquerade? i got a terrific idea, Miss Brooks.
5: I'm just going to put on an old sheet. Do you think Mr. Conklin will get a kick out of me as a ghost? If he
2: thought it was on the level, it would add ten years to his life.
5: (laughs) (laughs) What are you
7: coming
2: at, Miss Brooks? I haven't quite decided yet. Any suggestions?
5: Well, just one. I don't want you to think I'm being fresh or anything, but this is going to be a Halloween party, and I'd be glad to furnish you with a broom. I guess I'm a natural for it.
2: Look, uh, who's coming over? Oh, it's Mr. Boynton. Hello, Mr. Boynton.
1: Hello, Walter. Hello, Mr. Boynton. Hello, Stretch. Hello, Miss Brooks. Hello,
2: Mr. Boynton. Goodbye, Walter. Goodbye, Stretch.
3: <laughs>
2: we ain't going nowhere.
5: Stretch. Don't you know the old expression two's company, three's a crowd?
1: Oh, sure, I do. But there's four of us. <laughs>
5: Harry, you figure out a costume for tonight. Uh,
1: See you later, folks. Yeah, see you later, folks. Oh, so long, boys. Well, Miss Brooks, I think it's a splendid idea you're giving this little surprise party for our principal tonight. It should do him a world of good. It should do us a world of good, too,
2: if he brightens up a bit. What kind of an outfit do you think you'll wear, Mr. Boynton?
1: Well, I've got a skeleton costume home that I used to have quite a bit of fun with in my college days. It's just a black, tight-fitting garment with a bunch of bones hanging on it. Bones? Yes, they're treated with a phosphorescent paint that makes them glow in the dark. It's quite a startling effect, the more so since I gathered the bones when I was an anatomy student.
2: From anyone I know?
1: I don't mean to dwell on it, Miss Brooks, but I find bones a rather fascinating subject, don't you? That
2: depends on what they're wrapped up in.
3: <laughs> yes. Uh, uh,
1: how, how are you masquerading tonight?
2: Oh, I don't know. If you're coming as a skeleton, maybe I'll come as a bottle of vitamin.
3: (laughs) (laughs) I'm really a little
2: stumped, Mr. Boynton. What do you think I should be?
1: Well, the two most popular figures associated with Halloween are a black cat and a witch.
2: And I'm much too tall for a cat. (laughs) Walter! Oh, Walter! Get Get a lube job on that broom boy. Constance Brooks rides tonight.
1: I'm glad we're going away in the morning, Martha. Dr. Benson told me I'm very close to the breaking point. Yes. Of course, Arthur. Don't shout so. (laughs) He said that some of my trouble was caused by my blood pressure, but that part of it was due to an overactive imagination. He wants me to be calm, relax more. <laughs> I'd like to see him relax with that recurring dream I've had.
3: You
6: mean the one where the ghost visits you at night?
1: Yeah.
6: <laughs>
1: Only the last couple of times it's gotten worse. Instead of a plain ghost, I've been getting one with Walter Denton's head on it.
3: Really,
6: Oscar, I, I just don't know what you've got against that poor boy. Harriet's very fond of him.
1: Then she should see a doctor, too. <laughs> Where is she, Martha?
6: Well, she's in her room, dear, getting dressed. She said something about a party tonight.
1: Parties? all kids nowadays think about. Well, there won't be any parties at Crystal Lake. There won't be any nightmares either. Why, Martha, do you realize that while I was sitting in the doctor's office today, I saw a bulldog by his desk? A bulldog? It was the shadow of his umbrella stand. But I almost jumped out of my skin before he explained it.
6: Things like that happen to people every day, Osgood.
1: Not to me, they don't. At least they'd better not. How do you think the Board of Education would like it if they thought one of their principals went around seeing bulldogs?
6: <laughs> Just don't mention it to anyone, darling. Now I'm going to get you a glass of warm milk, and you stay right comfy in your chair till I get back. you
1: very well. <laughs> yes.
3: That
1: thing looked like a bulldog. Martha's right though I'd better not mention it to her soul Now who in the world can that be? Coming
2: Good evening Mr. Conklin May I come in?
1: There's no tactical way I can refuse you admission Come in Miss Brooks
2: Have the others arrived yet?
1: Others? What others?
2: You'll see when they get here. Is Harriet at home?
1: Yes, yes. She's putting on her party dress.
2: Oh, then you know about it. It should do you a lot of good, Mr. Conklin. There's nothing like a house full of people to get your mind off
1: yourself. A house full of... uh, Miss Brooks, is this party to be given in this house? Of course. I see. Then if you'll excuse me, I'll just take my hat and coat and beat an orderly retreat.
2: But, Mr. Conklin... My
1: doctor has forbidden any excitement whatsoever.
2: Your doctor? This is a fine time to tell me. I mean, I didn't know you were in such bad shape, Mr. Conklin.
1: I am on the verge of a nervous collapse, Miss Brooks. But I don't want to spoil everybody's fun. I'll just leave quietly.
2: Leave? But, Mr. Conklin, where will you go?
1: What's the difference where I go? (laughs) I'll just wander around the park like a homeless gypsy.
2: You can't do that. You wouldn't look good in earrings. I mean, you're not a well man, Mr. Conklin. Look, Mrs. Davis is going to the movies tonight. Now, why don't you let me drive you over to our place until I can eliminate the horde of pests? guests who are coming here. <laughs> You'll love it over there, Mr. Thompson. You'll be able to relax completely.
1: If it will stave off my breakdown, Miss Brooks, it's the least I can do for my family.
4: <laughs> Miss Brooks left right after dinner, Mr. Boynton. I guess she forgot to buy a few items for the party
1: tonight. I'm sure she'll be right back. Fine.
4: Swell. This way our surprise will work out even better.
1: Surprise? Yes, ma'am. We thought we'd try out some of our Halloween tricks on Miss Brooks before we go over to Mr. Conklin's house.
4: That's a wonderful idea. I hope I didn't scare you in my ghost outfit. No, I thought you were the laundry man.
1: How do you like my costume, Mrs. Davis?
4: Nice you've lost weight haven't you <laughs>
3: this,
1: this is a skeleton suit in honor of halloween
4: <laughs> isn't that terrifying and who's this cowboy with
1: you oh, i'm Hopalong cassidy mrs davis but i'm really Stretch snodgrass mm.
4: i'd never have known well if you'll all go into the house i'm sure miss brooks will be delighted to see you i've got to get down to the theater now
1: oh what movie are you seeing tonight mrs davis
4: Gilson sings again, again.
3: (laughs) Again, again?
4: (laughs) I saw it last week, also.
3: (laughs) Have a nice time,
4: Gilson.
1: What should I do with this bucket of water we're ducking for apples in, Walter? Oh,
5: just put it down by the piano stretch. Now, I'll tell you what we'll do. Before Miss Brooks comes back, let's all hide somewhere so we can really surprise
1: her. Good idea, Walter. Why don't you get behind that couch... Stretch, you hide behind the kitchen door, and I'll get into the hall closet.
5: Great. And we'll all come out when I blow this whistle.
1: (whistles) Okay? Got you, Walter. Hey, look, out the window. Miss Brooks is coming up the walk, and she's got Mr. Conklin with her. Mr. Conklin? Oh, she probably wanted to get him out of the way while we were getting things ready at his place.
5: So much the better. We'll surprise both of them at the same time. Now, first, I'll put the lights out. Quick, let's get out of sight.
2: Mr. Conklin? I guess Mrs. Davis is left for the movies. The lights are all out.
1: But it does seem quite deserted in here.
2: I'll turn on this hall light so you can see to hang your things up in the closet. I'll turn some lights on in the living room while you put your hat and coat away.
1: Thank you, Miss Brooks.
3: What? Miss Brooks!
1: Miss Brooks! What is it, Mr. Conklin? What's the trouble? Your closet, in the hall. What do you keep in there?
2: My coat,
1: Mr. Conklin. I see. I see. Tell me, Miss Brooks, is it a long black coat with luminous bones? Luminous
2: bones? Yes. Oh, no. Yes. Oh, please wait right here, Mr. Conklin. I'll investigate.
1: Oh, it's me, Miss Brooks. You should have seen Mr. Conklin's face when Get he was...
2: behind those other coats immediately, Mr. Boynton. But, Miss Brooks... I can't explain now, but don't you dare come out of there until you get a signal.
1: Well, Miss Brooks, what did you see?
2: See? I didn't see anything, Mr. Conklin. It must have been your imagination.
1: My imagination? Then the doctor was right.
2: Is that Mr. Conklin?
1: I'd, I'd rather not talk about it, Miss Brooks. If I could just lie down somewhere.
2: Oh, of course, Mr. Conklin. Just stretch out on this couch. I'll go get another cushion for
1: you. All right. Uh... Ah, that's better. I must be quite a sick man. If I weren't sick, I wouldn't be moaning like this.
3: saying. I'm not the one who's moaning.
5: I've returned. I've come back.
1: Who's that? Where are you?
5: Look behind you. <laughs> behind the cow.
2: Behind the cow. Hey, <laughs> Cousin, are you all right?
1: Miss Miss Brooks, how long have I been asleep? Asleep? Yes.
2: You just hit the couch, Mr. Conklin. Which reminds me, maybe you'd better see a good psychiatrist. This screaming of yours can lead to something dangerous. Just, just
1: do me a favor, Miss Brooks. Look behind that couch.
2: Certainly, sir, if it'll make you feel any better. But I assure you, there's absolutely nothing behind this couch. I'm sorry if I startled you, Mr. Conklin, but... My cat Minerva's back here.
1: With a sheet?
2: She was making her bed. <laughs> Stay out of sight, Minerva. There's a good girl boy. A
1: girl. If you don't mind, Miss Brooks, I'd like to take a couple of pills my doctor prescribed. May I have some water, please?
2: Certainly, sir. If you've got an extra pill or two, I'll be happy to join you. <laughs> Just sit right here, Miss Conklin. I'll go into the kitchen and get some water. Now, on second thought, you'd better come with me. I don't want you to get nervous again.
1: Yes, uh, I think you're right, Miss Brooks. Doesn't do for me to be alone lately.
2: Now, where's that light switch? Well, dog might catch if it ain't roundup time. <laughs> It isn't a real leave, Mr. Conklin. You're just on a weekend
3: pass.
2: (laughs) Oh, lots of people get temporary hallucinations. Maybe we'd better go back to your house.
1: Yes, yes, at a time like this, I suppose I should be near my loved one.
5: (laughs) Happy Halloween, Mr. Conklin. Look, it's
1: me. Xander,
2: when did you... How did you...
1: What's
2: this? It's just my coat coming over. Get back to the
3: closet.
1: Uh, it's me, Mr. Conklin. I'm a skeleton, see? Look at me, Mr. Conklin. I'll hop along Cassidy and I'll plug the first hombre that makes the move. not grass.
3: I'll... Oh,
1: stop that! <laughs> <laughs> no, I must control uh, myself. What's wrong, Mr. Conklin? You don't seem to be enjoying yourself.
5: Yeah, you yeah, act all jumpy and funny. Gosh, Miss Brooks went to a lot of trouble to get this thing organized.
1: Walter, please. Oh, Miss Brooks organized it, did she? Sure, she planned the whole thing. She deserves every bit of credit. Well, she's certainly going to get it. Miss Brooks, I want to... Miss Brooks, Miss Brooks, get your head out of that bucket. This is no time to be ducking for apples.
2: Mm. Who's ducking for apples? I'm trying to drown myself. <laughs>
1: Now, once again, here is our Miss Brooks. Well, Mr. Conklin was
2: so glad to find out that the things he thought had been happening to him had been happening to him, that he excused us all and hurried home. Shortly afterwards, I excused Walter and Stretch, which left just Mr. Boynton, the parlor sofa, and me.
1: Well, here we are, Miss Brooks. You know, with that lamplight shining on your hair, you're you're absolutely well.
2: Yes, Mr. Boynton. You hoo! You hoo, folks. What's that? Look,
1: at the window, it's Mrs. Davis with a pumpkin head.
2: Just what I needed. Happy Halloween, Connie. Trick or treat. I've got a trick, Mrs. Davis. Here's 60 cents. Treat yourself to Joseph's some things again, again, again.
1: Be sure to listen to Mr. and Mrs. North Tuesday evening over most of these same stations. And be with us again next week at this same time for another comedy episode of Our Miss Brooks. Bob Lebon speaking. This is CBS, the Columbia Broadcasting System.
0: Our next trick-or-treat comes from the mind of John Dixon Carroll. It is the crime anthology series that was touted as radio's outstanding theater of thrills, Suspense. The offering tonight is called The Wax Works and stars William Conrad, Best known as Marshal Matt Dillon on the long running Western Gunsmoke from CBS Radio, May 1st, 1956. Another tale well calculated to keep you in suspense.
8: And now, tonight's presentation of radio's outstanding theater of thrills Suspense. evening. Suspense brings you what we feel is a particularly unusual and absorbing story. No actors other than Mr. William Conrad will appear in its presentation. It's a study in terror which has few equals. So now, starring Mr. Conrad, here is tonight's suspense play by A. M. Burridge, The The Waxwork.
9: While the uniformed attendants of Mariner's Waxworks were ushering the last stragglers through the great glass-paneled double doors, the manager sat in his office interviewing Raymond Hewson. The manager was speaking. Oh, there's nothing new in your request, sir. In fact, we refuse it to different people, mostly young bloods who try to make bets about three times a week, I should say. We have nothing to gain, something to lose by letting people spend the night in our murderer's den... Uh, If I allowed it and some young idiot lost his senses, what would be my position, eh? But uh, your being a journalist somewhat alters the case. Hewson smiled. I I suppose you mean that journalists have no senses to lose. No, 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 of course not. But one imagines them to be responsible people. Besides, we have something to gain here. Publicity and advertisement. Yes, exactly, said Hewson. Uh, and there I thought we might come to terms the manager smiled yes yeah, I know what's coming you want to be paid twice to him you? you know it used to be said years ago that Madame Tussaud would give a man a hundred pounds for sleeping alone in the Chamber of Horrors well I hope you don't think that we've made any such offer uh, what is your paper Mr. Houston? Well, I'm freelancing at present, sir, working on space for several papers. However, I I, I would find no difficulty in getting the story printed. I'm sure the morning echo would use it like a shot. A night with mariners murderers? No live paper could turn it down, sir. Yes. uh, How do you propose to treat it? Well, I shall make it gruesome, of course. Gruesome with just a saving touch of humor. The manager nodded and offered Houston his cigarette case. Very well, Mr. Houston, you get your story printed in the morning, Echo, and there'll be a five-pound note waiting for you when you care to come and call for it. But, uh, first of all, you realize it's no small ordeal that you're proposing to undertake. I'd like to be quite sure about you. I'd like you to be quite sure about yourself. I own I shouldn't care to take it on. I should hate having to sleep down there, let alone... Among them. Why? Asked Hewson. Oh, I don't know. There isn't any reason, I suppose. I don't believe in ghosts. If I did, I should expect them to haunt the scene of their crimes or the spots where their bodies were laid instead of a cellar which happens to contain their waxwork images. Well, it's just that I couldn't sit alone among them all night with their seeming to stare at me in the way they do. After all... They represent the lowest and the most appalling types of humanity. The whole atmosphere of the place is unpleasant. And if you're susceptible to atmosphere, sir, I warn you that you're in for a very uncomfortable night. Hewson had known that from the moment when the idea first occurred to him. His soul sickened at the prospect. But he had a wife and a family to keep. So here was a chance not to be missed. The price of a special story in the morning echo with a five-pound note to add to it. Besides, if he wrote the story well, it might lead to an offer of regular employment. The manager smiled at him and rose. Well, I think the last of the people must have gone by now. Oh, uh, there is one condition I'm afraid I must impose upon you, sir. I must ask you not to smoke. We had a fire scare out on the murderers at 10 this evening... I don't know who gave the alarm, but uh, whoever it was, it was a false one. Fortunately, there were very few people down there at the time, and there might have been a panic. Ah, now, if you're ready, we'll make a move. He led the way through an open barrier and down ill-lit stone stairs, which conveyed a sinister impression of giving access to a dungeon. In a passage at the bottom were a few preliminary horrors, such as relics of the Inquisition, a rack taken from a medieval castle, branding irons, thumbscrews, and other mementos of man's cruelty to men. Beyond the passage was the murderer's den. <coughs> It was a room of irregular shape, with a vaulted roof and dimly lit by electric lights, burning behind inverted bowls of frosted glass. It was, by design, an eerie and uncomfortable chamber, a chamber whose atmosphere invited its visitors to speak in whispers. The waxwork murderers stood on low pedestals with numbered tickets at their feet. Recent notorieties rubbed dusty shoulders with the old favorites. Fertel, the murderer of Weir, stood as if frozen in the act of making a shop window gesture to young Bywaters. And there was Lefroy, the poor half-baked little snob who killed for gain so that he might ape the gentleman. Within five yards of him sat Mrs. Thompson, that erotic romanticist hanged to propitiate British middle-class matronhood. Charles Peace, the only member of the vile company who looked uncompromisingly and entirely evil, sneered across a gangway at Norman Thorne. Brown and Kennedy, the two most recent additions, stood between Mrs. Dyer and Patrick Mahon. The manager, walking around with Houston, pointed out several of the more interesting of these unholy notabilities. Uh, that's Cripplin. I expect you recognize him insignificant little beast who looks as if he couldn't tread on a worm. Oh, and that's Armstrong. But looks like a decent, harmless country gentleman, doesn't he? And there's old Vakier. You can't miss him, of course, because of his beard. And this one... Who's that? Hewson asked in a whisper. Here, come here, have a good look at him. Huh? This is our star turn. He's the only one of the bunch that hasn't been hanged. The figure which Hewson had indicated was that of a small, slight man not much more than five feet in height. It wore little waxed mustaches, large spectacles, and a caped coat. There was something so exaggeratedly French in its appearance that it reminded Hewson of a stage caricature. He could not have said precisely why the mild-looking face seemed to him so repellent, but he had already recoiled a step, and even in the manager's company it cost him an effort to look again. But who is he? he asked. That, said the manager, is Dr. Baudet. Hewson shook his head doubtfully. I I think I've heard the name, but I forget in connection with what? The manager smiled. Uh, You'd remember better if you were a Frenchman. You know, for some long while, that man was the terror of Paris. He carried on his work of healing by day and of throat cutting by night. Why, he killed for the sheer devilish pleasure it gave him to kill, and always in the same way. With a razor. After his last crime he left a clue behind him which set the police upon his track, oh, but he was much too clever for them. When he realized that the coils were closing about him, he mysteriously disappeared. And ever since the police of every civilized country have been looking for him. There's no doubt that he managed to make away with himself and by some means, which has prevented his body coming to light, uh, one or two crimes of a similar nature have taken place since his disappearance, but he is believed almost for certain to be dead, and the experts believe these recrudescences to be the work of an imitator. It's queer, isn't it, Mr. Houston? How every notorious murderer has imitators... Hewson shuddered and fidgeted with his feet. I, I, I don't like him at all. <sighs> what eyes he's got. Yes, this figure's a little masterpiece. You find the eyes bite into you, huh? Eh? Well, that's excellent realism, then, for Boudet practiced mesmerism and was supposed to mesmerize his victims before dispatching them. Indeed, had he not done so, it's impossible to see how so small a man could have done his costly work. There were never any signs of struggle. I, I, th- I thought I saw him move, said Hewson with a catch in his voice. The manager smiled. You'll have more than one optical illusion before the night's out, I expect, sir. Well, I'm sorry I can't give you any more light because all the lights are on. For obvious reasons, we keep this place as gloomy as possible, eh? Well, Mr. Hewson, Good night. Hewson wheeled a swivel chair, a heavy one upholstered in plush, a little way down the central gangway, and deliberately turned it so that its back was toward the effigy of Dr. Baudette. For some undefined reason he liked Dr. Baudet a great deal less than his companions busying himself with arranging the chair he was almost light-hearted but when the manager's footfalls had died away and a deep hush stole over the chamber he realized that he had no slight ordeal before him the dim unwavering light fell on the rows of figures which were so
3: uncannily
9: like human beings that the silence and the stillness seemed unnatural and even ghastly. He missed the sound of breathing, the rustling of clothes, the 101 minute noises one hears when even the deepest silence has fallen upon a crowd. And the air was as stagnant as water at the bottom of a standing pond. It must be like this at the bottom of the sea, he thought he faced these sinister figures boldly enough they were only waxworks so long as he let that thought dominate all others he promised himself that all would be well it did not, however, save him long from the discomfort occasioned by the waxen stare of Dr. Boudet, which he knew was directed upon him from behind the eyes of the little Frenchman haunted and tormented him and he itched with a desire to turn and look. My nerves have started already, he thought, and then another voice in his brain spoke to him. It's because you're afraid that you won't turn and look at him. The two voices quarreled silently for a moment or two, and at last, Huston slewed his chair around a little and looked behind him. Among the many figures standing in stiff, unnatural poses, the effigy of the dreadful little doctor stood out with a queer prominence, perhaps because of a steady beam of light beat straight down upon it. Houston flinched before the parody of mildness, which some fiendishly skilled craftsman had managed to convey in wax, met the eyes for one agonized second and then turned again to face the other direction. He's only a waxwork like the rest of you, Huston muttered defiantly. You're all only waxworks. They were only waxworks, yes. But waxworks don't move. Oh, not that he had seen the least movement anywhere, but it struck him that in the moment or two while he'd looked behind him, there had been the least subtle change in the grouping of the figures in front. Crippen, for instance, seemed to have turned at least one degree to the left. Or, thought Hewson, perhaps the illusion was due to the fact that he had not slewed his chair back into its exact original position. Oh, but there were Brown and Kennedy, too. Surely one of them had moved his hands. Hewson held his breath for a moment and then drew his courage back to him as a man lifts a weight. He took a notebook from his pocket and wrote quickly, Memo, deathly silence and unearthly stillness of figures, like being at bottom of sea. Hypnotic eyes, Dr. Baudet. Figures seemed to move when not being watched. He closed the book suddenly over his fingers and looked around quickly and awfully over his right shoulder. He had neither seen nor heard a movement, but... It was as if some sixth sense had made him aware of one. He looked straight into the vapid countenance of Lefroy, which smiled vacantly back as if to say, it wasn't I. No, of course it wasn't he, or any of them. It was his own nerves. Or was it? Then why all that silent unrest about him? a subtle something in the air which did not quite break the silence and happened, whichever way he looked, just beyond the boundaries of his vision. He swung round quickly to encounter the mild but baleful stare of Dr. Baudet, and then without warning, he jerked his head back to stare straight at Crippen. <laughs> he nearly caught Crippen that time. You'd better be careful, Crippen, and all the rest of you. If I do see one of you move, I'll smash you to pieces. Do you hear ought to go. He told himself. Already he'd experienced enough to write his story, or ten stories for the matter of that. Well then, why not go? The morning echo would be none the wiser as to how long he'd stayed. Nobody'd care so long as his story was a good one. Yes, but the manager... One never knew perhaps the manager would quibble over that five-pound note which he needed so badly. He Wondered if his wife were asleep or if she were lying awake and thinking of him. (laughs) She'd laugh when he told her that he'd imagine... that he'd imagine. This was a little too much. It was bad enough that the waxwork effigies of murderers should move when they weren't being watched, but it was intolerable that they should... Breathe. Somebody was breathing. Or was it his own breath which sounded to him as if it came from a distance? He sat rigid. Listening. Straining. Until he exhaled with a long... His own breath, after all. For, if not, something had divined that he was listening and had ceased breathing simultaneously. Hewson turned his head swiftly around and looked all about him out of haggard and hunted eyes, everywhere his gaze encountered the vacant waxen faces. And everywhere he felt that by just some least fraction of a second he had missed seeing a movement of hand or foot, a silent opening, a compression of lips, a flicker of eyelids, a look of human intelligence now smoothed out. (laughs) They, They were like naughty children in a classroom, whispering, fidgeting, and laughing behind their teacher's back, but blandly innocent when his gaze was turned upon them. No. No, this would not do. This distinctly would not do. He must clutch at something, grip with his mind upon something which belonged essentially to the workaday world, to the daylight London streets. He was Raymond Hewson, an unsuccessful journalist, a living and breathing man, and these figures grouped around him were only dummies, so they could neither move nor whisper. Well, what did it matter if they were supposed to be lifelike effigies of murderers? They were only made of wax and sawdust and stood there for the entertainment of morbid sightseers and orange-sucking trippers. Oh, that was better. Now, what was that funny story which somebody had told him in the Falstaff pub yesterday? Oh, Yes he recalled part of it but not all for the gaze of Dr. Baudet urged challenged and finally compelled him to turn Yusin half turned and then swung his chair so as to bring him face to face with the wearer of those dreadful hypnotic eyes His own eyes were dilated, and his mouth at first set in a grin of terror, lifted at the corners in a snarl, and then Hewson spoke and woke a hundred sinister echoes.
3: You moved! (sighs) Yes, you did, you moved, I saw you! You moved!
9: Then he sat quite still, staring straight before him. Like a man found frozen in the Arctic snows. Doctor Baudet's movements were leisurely. He stepped off his pedestal with the mincing care of a lady alighting from a bus. The platform stood about two feet from the ground. And above the edge of it, a plush-covered rope hung in arc-like curves. Dr. Baudet lifted up the rope until it formed an arch for him to pass under. Stepped off the platform and sat down on the edge, facing Houston.
10: Then he nodded and smiled and said, Good evening. <laughs> I need hardly tell you that uh, not until I overheard the conversation between you and the worthy manager of this establishment did I suspect that I should have the pleasure of a companion here for the night. Uh, uh, you cannot move or speak without my bidding. <laughs> "'But you can hear me perfectly well. "'Oh, oh, something tells me that you are, uh, shall I say, nervous. Uh, "'My dear sir, I have no illusions. "'I am not one of these contemptible effigies miraculously come to life. "'I am Dr. Burdett himself.'
9: "'He paused, coughed, and shifted his legs.
10: Uh, uh, "'Pardon me, but I am a little stiff.' Oh, uh, please, let me explain. Uh, Circumstances with which I need not fatigue you have made it desirable that I should live in England. I was close to this building this evening when I saw a policeman. Regarding me, I thought a little too curiously. I guess that he intended to follow and perhaps asked me embarrassing questions, so I mingled with the crowd and came in here. (laughs) A coin brought my admission to the chamber in which we now meet, and an inspiration showed me a certain means of escape. I raised a cry of fire, <laughs> and when all the fools had rushed to the stairs, I stripped my effigy of the cape coat which you behold me wearing, donned it, hid my effigy under the platform at the back, and took its place on the pedestal. <laughs>
3: uh,
10: uh, the manager's description of me, which I had the embarrassment of being compelled to overhear, was biased, but not altogether inaccurate. Clearly, I am not dead, <laughs> although it is as well that they will think otherwise, no? Is uh, account of my abbey, which I have indulged for years, although through necessity, uh, less frequently of late, was in the main true. For, you see, the world is divided between collectors and non-collectors. With the non-collectors, we are not concerned, eh? The collectors collect anything according to their individual tastes, from money to cigarette cards, from malls to matchboxes. Uh, I collect throats.
9: He paused again and regarded Houston's throat with interest, mingled with disfavor.
10: Uh. I am obliged to the chance which brought us together tonight, and perhaps it would seem ungrateful to complain. (laughs) From motives of personal safety, my activities have been somewhat curtailed of late years, and I am glad of this opportunity of gratifying my somewhat unusual whim. But (laughs) you, sir, (laughs) you have such a skinny neck. (laughs) If you will overlook a personal remark, I should never have selected you from choice, I like men with thick necks. Thick red necks.
9: He fumbled in an inside pocket and took out something which he tested against a wet forefinger and then proceeded to pass gently to and fro across the palm of his left hand.
10: This is a little French razor. <laughs> The blade you will observe is very narrow. They do not cut very deep, but deep enough. In just one little moment, you shall see for yourself. (laughs) And Now, I shall ask you the little civil question of all the polite barbers. (laughs) Does the razor suit you, sir?
9: He rose up, a diminutive but menacing figure of evil, and approached Huston with a silent, furtive step of a hunting panther,
10: Uh, You will have the goodness to raise your chin a little, then. Oh, thank you. And a little more, just a little more. eh? Ah, thank you. Merci, monsieur. Merci, merci.
3: Ah, Merci.
9: Over one end of the chamber was a thick skylight of frosted glass, which by day let in a few sickly unfiltered rays from the floor above. After sunrise, these began to mingle with the subdued light from the electric bulbs. And this mingled illumination added a certain ghastliness to a scene which needed no additional touch of horror. The waxwork figures stood apathetically in their places waiting to be admired or execrated by the crowds... who would presently wander fearfully among them. In their midst, in the center gangway... Hewson sat still, leaning far back in his swivel chair. His chin was uptilted as if he were waiting to receive attention from a barber. And although there was not a scratch upon his throat... nor anywhere upon his body... He was cold and dead. Dr. Baudet, on his pedestal, watched the dead man unemotionally. He did not move, nor was he capable of motion. But then, after all, he was only a waxwork.
8: Jim Conrad starred in tonight's presentation of The Waxwork. The music for tonight's program was composed by Lucian Morawack. Next week, we bring you a story based on fact. A man's last hours in a death cell awaiting execution. We call it The Phones Die First. That's next week on Suspense.
11: Is produced and directed in Hollywood by Anthony
8: Ellis. Tonight's story was written by A.M. Burridge. The orchestra was conducted by Wilbur Hatch. Stay tuned for five
9: minutes of CBS News to be followed on most of these same stations by my son, Jeep. listens most to the CBS radio network.
0: time now for the news of the day. The ENIAC computer, the electronic numerical integrator and computer, was one of the first large general purpose digital computers. It was used to integrate ballistic equations and to calculate the trajectory of naval shells. It was completed in 1946 and it remained in use until it was deactivated at the Aberdeen Proving Grounds in Maryland on October 2, 1955. The West German cargo ship Feckenheim runs aground off Oslo, Norway, and breaks into two. All 42 crew members are rescued. Helicopters from the U.S. Navy aircraft carrier Saipan played a key role in rescuing people stranded by flooding in Tampico, Mexico. The Rodgers and Hammerstein musical film, Oklahoma, is the first feature film to be photographed in Todd A.O. 70mm widescreen and is released in the United States in 1955. In sports, Dateline Detroit, the NHL holds its ninth annual All-Star Game. The Red Wings defeat the NHL All-Stars 3-1. Baltimore Colts fullback Alan Amici becomes the first rookie in history to score 100 yards rushing in his first two games, a rushing record that was not to be broken until 2005. The 1955 World Series matched the Brooklyn Dodgers against the New York Yankees, with the Dodgers winning the series in seven games to capture their first championship in franchise history. It would be the only series the Dodgers won while based in Brooklyn as the team relocated to Los Angeles after the 1957 season. And that concludes this edition of the News of the Day. A quiet night. A train whistle is heard off in the distance. And suddenly you hear a distant voice welcoming you. It must be the mysterious traveler. And this time we join him in a tale entitled... Death is My Caller. From the Mutual Network, October 21st, 1947, it's The Mysterious Traveler.
12: Mutual presents The Mysterious Traveler, written, produced, and directed by Bob Arthur and David Cogan. <laughs> Mysterious
8: traveler, inviting you to join me on another journey into the realm of the strange and terrifying. I hope you will enjoy the trip, and it will thrill you a little and chill you a little. So settle back, get a good grip on your nerves,
12: and be comfortable. If you can.
8: Where are we going? Tonight, we're going to drop in on Henry Norton, a man who saw death in every corner. I call the story... Death is My Caller. My story begins late one afternoon in the luxurious office of Henry Norton, a stockbroker. Norton... A tall, dapper man in his 40s is in the midst of signing some letters when he's called on the office communicator by his secretary.
13: Excuse me,
8: Mr. Norton. Uh, Yes, Miss Perry?
13: There's a Mr. Blair to see you.
8: Uh, Mr. Who?
13: Charles Blair. He says you know him very well.
8: Charlie Blair? Uh, uh, Tell him I'm not in. I'm out of town. Tell him anything. I don't want to see him. I don't ever want to see him. He
13: says he knows you're here, insists on talking
8: to you. Get him out of the office. Get some of the boys to help you. If he won't leave, just... Oh, I'm sorry. And I'm sorry, I couldn't stop him. Oh, that's that's quite all right, Miss Perry. I'll see him. Hello, Henry. I thought you'd be delighted to see me. We haven't seen each other for seven long years. That wasn't nice not to have a chat with your ex-partner, was it? Well, I was awfully busy. I have a lot of work to do. you know how it is. No, I don't. Uh, I didn't know you were out already. Uh, Thought you had three more years to go. I did, but good behavior cut three years off my sentence. Well, that's wonderful, Charlie. I'm glad you're out. It must have been a terrible experience. You've you've changed. It was a little hard to recognize you at first. Perhaps the prison pallor doesn't become me, and my hair has turned completely gray. I don't look so good, do I, Henry? Not like you with a Florida tan. <clears throat> How's Helen? My wife's dead. She's dead? Oh, I'm terribly sorry. What'd she die of? She died of heartbreak. Oh, poor Helen. She was always such a sensitive woman. What about your son, Alan? He disappeared after his mother died. I don't know where he is. He never wrote me while I was in jail. Never forgave me for bringing ruin and suffering upon his mother. You see... He was sensitive, too. You've had a pretty hard time of it, haven't you, Charlie? Your sympathy is touching. Well, I I hope you'll drop around again sometime when I'm not so busy. I'm not leaving yet, Uh, Henry. Uh I've got some important work to finish. If you come around in a week or so, perhaps I'll have a spot for you, something in your line. I'm so nervous, Henry. I'm not going to kill you. Not yet. Kill me? Why should you want to kill me? I was wondering how long you'd put on this innocent act. All this concern about my welfare, about my wife and son. Why, you slimy rat! If it weren't for you, I'd never have gone to prison. My wife would be alive today, and my son wouldn't be embittered against me. I swear to you, it wasn't my fault. Believe me, Charlie. I had nothing. You should have known that sooner or later I'd be freed. You think I was ever going to forget how you framed me? I didn't frame you. It was out of my hands. I couldn't do a when my thing. My wife died and my son disappeared. I had no reason to live. Just one thing that kept me alive. A fine and beautiful vengeance I had worked out for you. I thought of you constantly as I tramped the prison yard. I lay awake at night, smoothing out my plans to pay you back for all you've done to me. 7 years. You can think of an awful lot of things. It was all Grayson's fault, I tell you. He's the one to it. I nourished and built my hate for seven long years. I cultivated it as I would a garden so that it isn't a hot, violent anger anymore. Oh, no. It's a cool, efficient hate that works by blueprint. I look at you now as an engineer would. at something he must destroy. And you're as good as dead... No, no, Charlie. No, I can explain everything. Just give me some time. I could kill you now, but you'd only suffer a few minutes and then it would be all over. That would never equal the years of torture and suffering that I've gone through. But I won't disappoint you, Henry. I am going to kill you. But not until you've gotten a fair idea what seven years of suffering means. I tell you, Charlie, it wasn't my fault. Grayson made me do it. He made me water those stocks under your name. So it was Grayson. Poor Grayson went to prison where he got sick and died. He framed himself, didn't he? Come now, Henry, pull yourself together. You ought to be able to concoct a better alibi than that silly one. You were quite a brilliant fellow once. Why, with one swoop, you got rid of two partners. And you thrived during these seven years while I was away. I hear you're one of the biggest brokers in the city now. Climbed over the backs of half a dozen people. Oh, look, Charles, let's be reasonable. I'll give you an important position in my company. It'll be a good paying job. job? Too. What for? What do I want money for? I have no family, no one to work for, care for. I have only one thing left in my life—that Henry is to see you go to the next world in the most agonizing way possible. Goodbye, Henry. You can spend the rest of the afternoon most profitably by making out your will. cold and clammy hands were trembling as Charles Blair left his office. The impact of seeing this ghost from his past left Henry's mind in a whirl of confusion. His mind turned to flight. But that was impossible. His money, his very life was wrapped up in his business. He couldn't flee. His brain in a turmoil, unable to do any work, Henry got his hat and coat and left his office. He arrived home badly unnerved and retired to his study to give the problem of Charles Blair further thought but he was interrupted. Uh, See who that is, Miss Dean. Uh, If it's Mr. Blair, don't let him in. I'm never into him, understand?
13: Yes, Mr. Norton, I understand.
8: How do you do, madam?
13: Is this the Norton home? Yes. What can I do for you? I'm Mr. Madden. I'd like to see the head of the household. Oh, just a moment, please. Uh, who is it? He says his name is Madden. Madden? I don't know anybody by that name.
8: Uh, has he got gray hair?
13: No, Mr. Norton. His hair is black.
8: Oh, all right. All right, I'll see him. Did you want to see me, sir? Uh, yes, sir. Are you Mr. Norton? Yes, I am.
14: All right, boys, bring it in. I did just put it down by the door
8: for the moment, boys. That's it. Hey, what's going on here? Uh, Why are you bringing a coffin into my apartment? Who are you? Well, now, if you please, I'd like to see the body. Body? What body? What's this all about? What's this coffin doing here? We've come for the body of Henry Norton. You must be crazy. I'm Henry Norton. You. Uh, I'm sorry. I must have gotten the names confused. Uh, What was your brother's name? I have no brother. There's no body in this house. this is some stupid joke, I don't think it's funny at all. I'm not in the habit of playing jokes, sir. I've been an established undertaker for many years. Here's my card. The devil take your card. Who put you up to this? Some man came to my parlor yesterday and arranged for the funeral of Henry Norton. He paid for everything in advance. Some man... What was his name? He didn't leave any name. Charlie Blair. What did he look like? i remember that rather tall, I think. His hair had turned white. Blair. So it was Blair trying to frighten me. Get out. Get out of here, you stupid fools. Take that coffin back with you. I'm not used to being spoken to like that, Mr. Knopfler. Get out of here before I throw you out. Come on, boys. Here, wait a minute. Don't leave that coffin here. It's all paid for, Mr. Norton. It's yours now. Keep it. You might need
14: it sometime.
8: Before Henry could call and the undertaker back, he was gone. Henry turned from the door and stared at the new coffin on the floor. It even had a plate on it with his name engraved. Unable to stand the sight of the coffin, Henry fled to his study and locked himself in. Unable to sleep, he spent the night trying to think of a way to escape Charles Blair's vengeance. The following morning found Henry haggard and distraught and no closer to a solution of his problem. As he ate a tasteless breakfast, the doorbell rang. Miss Dean, the housekeeper, went to the door. A minute later, she returned was that, Miss Dean?
13: It was the postman, Mr. Norton. His special delivery package came for you.
8: Oh, oh, must be the new field glasses I ordered. Here, let me have it. Hmm. Huh. Nice of them to wrap it in the gift box. Kind of a small box, though. Hmm. Huh. Yes, it isn't the binoculars after all.
13: Someone sent you a gift.
8: Hmm. Yeah, probably one of my clients. Wait a minute. You hear anything? Hear what? It's ticking. I'll put it to your ear. Listen.
13: Yes, uh, I hear it now.
8: It's throbbing. It's a time bomb. Oh. Somebody's trying to kill me. Time bomb! Oh! It, it'll go off any minute. Well, what are we going to do? Here, take it. Throw it away. Where? Uh, out of the window, any place. No, no,
13: no. There's people outside. Don't stand
8: there like an idiot. Throw it out. Well,
13: I'll throw it in the bathtub. Hurry before we get blown to bits. Dear, I hope it doesn't explode in my hands.
8: Henry Norton stood frozen with fear as Miss Dean raced with the package to the bathroom. A moment later, he heard the water gushing in the tub. Aware of the danger he was in, he hastily retreated to the library, which was the farthest room in the house from the bathroom. There, he crouched in the corner, feverishly mopping his brow. Ten minutes later, a police car raced up to the house, and the doorbell rang.
15: we well, from the bomb and alien squad. Where's the package?
13: It's in the bathtub. I turned the faucet on it. That
15: will do, anything, good lady. Where's the bathroom?
13: That door on your left.
15: All right, you stay here. Jim, you come along with me. Okay, here's the bathroom. You better stand back a little, Jim. I'll take a look at it myself. Well, huh. It isn't ticking anymore. Might be safe to open it now. Well, here goes. Why, it's only an alarm clock. Someone must have wound it up before he sent it out. Now, who'd want to do a fool thing like that?
8: That night, Henry Norton found it hard to sleep. He tossed and turned for hours, and it seemed he had hardly closed his eyes before he awoke with a start, certain there was someone in the room. Who's there? There's somebody in this room. I know it. I'll turn the light on. Never mind the light. It, 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 it's you, Charlie. What do you mean by breaking into my room in the middle of the night? Get dressed, Henry. Get dressed? What for? You and I are going somewhere. You're crazy. I'm staying right here. If you don't leave immediately, I'll call the police. If you call the police, they'll find only you here. Dead. Get dressed, Henry. All right, I'm getting dressed, but you won't get away with it. Make it fast. Don't make any unnecessary noises. Remember, it's with great control I keep myself from pressing the trigger. Well, I, I'm coming. I've got to get my clothes on, don't I? You're not going to a dance. Just put your shoes on and get into your coat. Uh, where are we going at this hour? be impatient. You'll find out soon enough. You're, you're, you're not going to kill me. You had better stop stalling. I'll get my coat. It's in the closet. Go ahead and get it. You make one suspicious move when you're a dead crook. Are you ready? Yes? Walk in front of me. We're going out through the back door. me to drive that's what i said and don't plan anything it only takes a fraction of a second to fire a gun you'll follow my directions carefully and drive slowly how much further are we going not much further henry Stop a little ahead of that tombstone sign. Oh, we're, we're near the cemetery. Look, Charlie. Charlie, I know I did you a great wrong. Maybe we can work out something. I, I, I've got lots of money. Stop here. We're getting out. Oh, look, be reasonable, Charlie. Let's ah, talk the to the tombstone-cutting establishment. Keep walking between the two rows of tombstones. Because this is our destination. Please, Charlie, don't. I, I'll do anything. I'll turn over half my money to you. Uh, why not all? all right, I'll give you everything I have. I don't want any of your money. And I'm not going to kill you yet. You see the tombstone in front of you? You see it? I'll turn the flashlight on it so that you can read it. Yeah. Well, go ahead. Read it. Henry Norton... Born March 15, 1899. Died October 21st, 1947. October 21st! Why, that's Tuesday, the day after tomorrow. That's right. The day after tomorrow. You have two whole beautiful days to live. But since you're the worrying type, you'll probably die a thousand deaths in those two days. 8 o'clock Tuesday night. Your infamous career will come to a sudden and violent end. You'll never get away with it. Nobody can get away with murder. All right. That's why you're going to die in two days. I suggest that about five minutes to wait, you crawl into the coffin I sent you. It'll save time. Funerals are so disagreeable. The sooner you get it over with, the better. You're inhuman, Charlie. Am I? Then you don't accept
0: my generous
12: offer?
8: You prefer to be put out of your misery right now? No, 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 not now. Why, you're shivering in Better button up your coat. You're not having to catch cold. Imagine dying in the midst of a sneeze. Well, shall we go? Or would you rather look around at some of the other tombstones? Being so rich, you might prefer marble instead of granite. no. Oh, I want to go back Perhaps home. you'd like to look over the nice cemetery I picked for you. It's just the other side of this yard. I'm sure you'd like to see where you're going to be buried. No, no, I wouldn't. I wouldn't like to see anything.
12: Not even curious.
8: Well, it doesn't really matter. It doesn't make any difference where you're buried after you're dead. Please, let, let me go home. I can't stand any more. Please, let me Calm go. Calm now, Henry. You mustn't go to pieces.
12: Why, you're trembling all over.
8: We ought you for a nervous breakdown. You must be very tired. You've had such a hard... Oh, you're driving me mad. Please let me go. Mm, No pride at all. You ought to meet your fate with defiance instead of oozing out like a blob of melted jelly. All right. Come on. We'll go back to the car. You can return home and go back to bed now if you think you can sleep. The morning of October 21st arrived, and Henry Norton's nerves were a little calmer. He had been promised a police guard, and detectives were searching the city for Charles Blair. He was reading the morning paper at home when the phone rang. Hello? Hello, Henry. Charlie, it's you. Very much me, Henry.
13: How are you feeling?
8: Uh, I'm fine. I, I forgive you for your, your joke on me the other night. Joke? I wasn't joking, Henry. In fact, I called now to ask if you would like an elaborate funeral with Flowers or just simple services with no one but your intimate friends present.
12: Oh, but how
8: foolish of me. I forgot you have no friends. So my call was useless. But I'll see you tonight at 8 o'clock sharp. Goodbye, Henry. Operator, operator. Uh, I must trace that call. Please tell me where it was coming from. Yes, I'll wait. Huh? What? The Judson Funeral Parlors? Well, that's in this block. Six o'clock. Uh, my head's splitting. Are there any aspirins in the house, Miss Dean?
13: Yes, they're in the medicine cabinet. Shall I get them for you?
8: Uh, No, never mind. I'll get them myself. Uh, Tonight I'm supposed to die at 8 o'clock. That's that's fantastic. Blair can't carry out his plan. Not if I had police protection. Uh, I have nothing to be afraid of. Nothing. Uh, Here are the aspirins. I'll take a couple of them. Oh, my head's splitting. No. No, maybe they're poison. That's right. They do look too large for aspirins. They are poison. Got to be on my guard. Death may come in a hundred different ways. Got to be on my toes. Oh, my headache. That's nothing. Nothing.
13: I won't take any aspirin. Dinner's ready, Mr. Uh, Norton. Oh, uh, I'm not hungry. Oh, but you must eat. You haven't eaten all day. How about a little broth? It'll warm you up. Uh, uh, all right, yes. I, I do
8: feel cold. Can't seem to get warm. Well, I'll up. get it for you. <sighs> Why, she's so anxious for me to eat. She doesn't like me. She never showed any concern about me before.
13: Here it is, Mr. Norton. Would you like some croutons uh, with it?
8: Uh, no, no, nothing else. Uh, something's wrong. This broth. It, has a peculiar bitter taste. It's
13: just some spice I've put in.
8: You're lying, Miss Dean.
13: Lying? Why should I be lying? You're
8: trying to poison me. Blair's put you up to this, but I'm too smart for the both of you. He'll never get me
13: that way. You're crazy, Mr. Norton. I've put up with plenty from you, but I've had enough. I'm leaving. You're a hard, mean man. I wanted to tell you that for a long time, and if anybody wants to poison you, he must have good reasons. Get
8: out. Get out, you... you... Oh, bore you. I'm
13: going. You can get yourself a new housekeeper. Sure.
8: Good riddance, you... Tried to poison me. Good thing I didn't swallow it. Who's there? It's the police. Oh, just a second. Police. It's about time you got here. You're
15: uh, Henry Norton? Yes, of course I am. Come in, come in. I'm Officer Gibson, Mr. Norton. I was sent to act as your bodyguard. I was told
8: someone's trying to kill you. Yes, Eight o'clock tonight. You Don't say. Even told you the exact time. Yeah. What precinct did you say you came from? I didn't say.
15: But I'm from the 16th precinct.
8: Mm Hmm?
15: Who's your captain? Captain Donovan. Tom Donovan.
8: Say, what's all this about? Uh, I just want to make sure you're a real policeman. What do I look like, a fireman? Uh, I've just got to make sure. You got any
15: credentials? Why, of course I have. Here's my identification card. And here's my badge. Hmm
8: i guess you're okay i've got to be careful blair's promised to kill me at exactly eight o'clock tonight he's capable of any trick well well
15: you don't have to worry mr norton the chances are that he's just trying to frighten you but if he's serious he won't get very far
8: you don't know him he's an inhuman fiend well i'll take care of him if he comes say you don't speak like a policeman your english is too good you were sent here by Charlie Blair. You're a fake. I happen to
15: be a college man who became a policeman. Nothing strange about that, is there? Why don't you call the precinct and make sure? I will. I'll call him right away.
8: Hello, operator. Give me the 16th Police Precinct Station. Hello? 16th Precinct? Uh, this is Henry Norton. Uh, did you send an officer named Gibson to my house? Oh, you did? Ah, I just wanted to make sure. Uh, Thank you. Sorry, you know, you you can't be too careful. Well, that's okay. I understand how you feel. What time is it? It's two minutes to eight. Is that the exact time? My watch says three minutes to eight. I checked my watch by radio just an hour ago.
15: You'll be here. I I know it. I don't think so. No man in his right mind would walk into a trap. Uh, it's 8 o'clock. Your hall clock is off about a minute. Well, say, you're shaking like a leaf. Oh, I'm frightened. He certainly put a scare into you. But What was that noise? I didn't hear anything. I'm sure I heard something move. Oh, it's just your imagination. Uh, what time is it? Just 8 o'clock. As a matter of fact, it's a few seconds after 8. There he is. There he is. It's him. He's Come. Stay right here. I'll answer Don't don't leave me. No, you stay here. That's funny. No one's at the door. I'll take a look outside.
8: Hello, Henry. Charlie, how'd you get here? You see, Henry? I keep my appointments. I got a boy to ring the bell at exactly 8 o'clock. I've been hiding in your house for hours. Oh, no. Don't, Charlie, please. You can have everything. I I promise I'll I'll give you back everything I took from you. In less than a minute, you're going to die. Uh, uh, Help! Help! Gibson! Save me! The door is locked. No one can save you. In a moment, your heart will be ripped apart by a piece of lead. Just one terrific moment of agonizing pain. Then you'll be dead,
15: Open
13: our door,
8: Norton. Help. Help, he's going to shoot. Oh, look You see, no one can help you now. This torture is only a minute for you, but it was seven years for me. It's a pity you want so much to live.
15: Mr. Norton,
8: Mr. Norton, I'm going around to, to the side door. Please, please Charlie, I'll, I'll do anything. No use crawling, getting on your knees. I'm going to shoot you when I count three. No, no. One.
13: Help, help. Two. Forget to save me.
8: Oh! Oh! What's going on
15: here? Why did you lock me out? And just who are you?
8: I was playing a joke on my friend. A
15: joke? You just shot him. Hand over your gun.
8: Yeah. But I didn't really shoot him. You can see for yourself, I just fired a blank. Huh? That's why Norton is lying on the floor? He's just fainted. We'll see. Keep your hands
12: up. He wasn't shot. There's no wound, not a drop of blood anywhere. That's right.
8: I only meant to scare him. He's in a deep faint. We had better call the doctor. So, you only meant to scare him?
15: Well, Norton's dead. You frightened him to death.
12: Mysterious Traveler again. Did you enjoy our little trip? Poor
8: Henry Norton. Imagine dying from the noise of a blank cartridge. His nerves were really on edge, weren't they? Oh well. At least he got a free coffin and tombstone. And he doesn't have to worry anymore about dying. Uh, what happened to Charles Blair? Well, he's still in prison, of course. Because you don't get away with murder. Even when you kill with a blank cartridge. And uh, speaking of murder, uh, I recall another case in which a a lovely young girl was able Oh, you have to get off here. I'm sorry. But I'm sure we'll meet again. I take this same train every week at the same time.
12: The Mysterious Traveler, a series of dramas of the strange and terrifying. In tonight's cast were Maurice Toplin, Santos Ortega, Agnes Young, Ted Jewett, and Neil O'Malley. Original music was played by Paul Taubman. The Mysterious Traveler is written, produced, and directed by Bob Arthur and David Cogan. Listen next week to a tale titled invitation to death. Another strange and terrifying tale of the mysterious traveler. This program came from New York. Another program of tense and dramatic action follows in just a minute. Stay tuned to the station for official detective. Carl Caruso speaking. This is the Mutual Broadcasting System.
0: Well, our night of fright goes on, but this time with a little bit of sophistication. Mr. and Mrs. North. In John Dunning's book, On the Air, he describes the Norths as average people, who might have lived next door or in the apartment upstairs, and they only solved average murders. And they do that again tonight. From NBC, October twentieth, 1953, it's Mr. and Mrs. North in The Masquerade.
7: Look, at the window. She's she's
0: going to try to
14: jump to the roof of the next building. Now, don't be a fool, Mrs. Rogers. You'll never make it.
3: Stay away from me. Stay away.
14: Mr. and Mrs. North. Starring Richard Denning and Barbara Britton. Listen as Pam and Jerry solve the mystery, Masquerade. Bleecker Street. The heart of the village and the heart of Bleecker Street is a small cafe called Muldoon's. Here, where the atmosphere is dim, the drinks are mellow, and the food is hearty, trouble finds no welcome. And yet it is there this evening, the uninvited guest at the table of Pam and Jerry North.
16: Uh, How about another cocktail before we eat, darling?
7: Oh, golly, no. Let's order.
16: (laughs) Okay. Uh, Waiter, menu, please.
14: Yes, sir.
7: Oh, my, this is a wonderful place. I never get tired of it, do you?
14: Nope.
7: I remember the first time I ever came here. I was in college then.
16: You mean you knew Muldoon's when it was a speakeasy? Jerry. <laughs> I was just kidding, dear. Muldoon's couldn't have been a speakeasy uh, while you were in college, could it? No. Of course not. That was before prohibition.
7: Jerry North, when you get off on one of these kidding kicks, I could... <laughs> oh.
16: What's the matter, dear?
7: It is... It is what? Not what, who? Who? Jeff Williams.
16: Jeff Williams?
7: The man sitting over there, at the table nearest the bar. See him? The one with the mousy little blonde.
16: Yeah, I see him, but who is he?
7: I knew him in college. Oh. Excuse me a minute, Jerry. Oh,
16: but Pam, I'll be
7: right back. Jeff. Jeff Williams, of all people. What a surprise.
17: I beg your pardon?
7: you don't remember me. I'm Pam North. Only my name was Saunders in college. Saunders? College? Modern European history. Professor Blair's class.
17: I'm afraid there's a mistake. Mistake? Apparently you had me confused with someone else.
7: You, you're not Jeff Williams? No. You must be joking.
17: My name is Wayne. Vincent Wayne. This is my wife.
7: How do you do? But, but this is impossible.
17: Do you think I'm lying to you, Mrs.? Uh, I don't believe I caught your name. North. As far as I know, Mrs. North, I've never seen you before in my life.
7: Well, I... I'm sorry. Excuse me. Uh, Jerry, let's get out of here.
16: Hmm? Get out? Why? Uh,
7: Never mind. I I, I want to go right, right now. But, darling,
16: we haven't eaten. What's the matter?
7: Well, that wasn't Jeff Williams.
16: Oh, so that's it. (laughs) And you're embarrassed.
7: Well, yes. Uh. No... I'm not embarrassed. I just can't understand why he'd lie. That's all. Lie? Yes. I've changed my mind. That man is Jeff Williams. Oh,
16: for Pete's sake, Pam! Just because he happens to resemble this old school chum of he yours doesn't, doesn't just
7: resemble him. No two people in the world could look as much alike. I don't care who Vincent Wayne says he is. I know he's Jeff Williams. <laughs>
17: Yes, Connie.
18: It's awfully late, Vince.
17: Yeah, I'll come to bed in a minute, honey. I just want to finish this cigarette.
18: What is it, Vince?
17: What's what? Worrying you. Nothing, Connie.
18: It's that woman who came to our table in the restaurant. Connie. Vince, she
17: was just mistaken, wasn't she? Of course. But she seems so, so certain. Now look, Connie, people make mistakes like that all the time. It doesn't mean a thing. So don't start imagining things.
18: I'm sorry, Vince, but sometimes I get so frightened. Frightened? I guess it's because I love you so much, and yet I know so little about you.
17: You know all there is to know.
18: That's not true, darling. I don't know anything, really. It's as though your life just began when you met me.
17: It did, honey. Isn't that the way it should be?
18: No. Everyone comes from somewhere, Vince. They have to, in order to be going anywhere. And that's what frightens me about you, about us. We're not going anywhere. Connie, please. It's as though you feel that each day may be the last one and you don't want anything left over. But it's those things, Vince, the things that are left over that go to make a life together. Oh, Vince. Connie,
17: darling, please don't.
18: (laughs) Oh, Vince, I love you so.
17: And I love you.
18: Don't let anything happen to us, Vince.
17: I won't, Connie. Nothing's going to happen to us. I promise.
16: I'll get it, Pam. Hi, darling.
1: Special delivery for Miss Gerald
16: North. Oh, thanks. I'll take it.
3: What
7: is it, Jerry?
16: Special delivery for you. Oh,
7: good. Is it a large envelope?
16: It oh, looks more like a package.
7: From Colfax College. That's what I've been waiting for.
16: Mm-hmm. Uh, what is it?
7: the last yearbook from the College Alumni Association. I couldn't find mine, so I wrote for another one.
16: What do you want another one for?
7: Well, there was a picture of Jeff Williams in it, and I was... Oh, thrilled...
16: Pam, for crying out loud. Can't you forget Jeff Williams?
7: The other night, you said I was crazy that Vincent Wayne couldn't be Jeff, and I'm going to prove to you that he couldn't be anyone else if it's the last thing I do. All
16: right, but if Jeff Williams has changed his name, why wouldn't he admit it?
7: I don't know, and I don't care. I know it's the same boy. Now, let's
16: yeah, and that's another thing. I wish you'd stop referring to that guy as a boy.
7: A.Q.W.W. Warner. <S.> <laughs> <S.> if he was
16: in college at the same time you, sir, he, he certainly isn't a boy anymore.
7: Watkins Williams. Huh? George. Harry. The telephone's ringing, dear.
16: I hear it. And if the guy hadn't been so good looking, she wouldn't care if he were Jeff Williams or Napoleon Third. Hello. Mrs. North, please. Well, uh. She's pretty engrossed right at the moment. Never mind. Is this Mr. North? Yes. Well, this is Mrs. Vincent Wayne. Mrs. Vincent Wayne? I wish you'd tell your wife that I saw her watching our apartment house this afternoon. What? And though I don't know what she's up to, I
7: want her to leave my husband and me alone. Completely alone.
16: Or she's going to get into trouble. Oh, now, just a moment, Mrs. Hello? 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 Jerry,
7: darling, I want you to look at this picture. Pam. What?
16: Were you snooping around Vincent Wayne's apartment house this afternoon?
7: Well, I... Uh, well? Well, I wasn't snooping exactly. Then what
16: were you doing exactly?
7: Well, I, I just went over there to see if I could get another look at Jeff. Once and, and b- for
16: all, Pam, Vincent Wayne is not Jeff Williams.
7: Who says so? He
16: says so, and I well, say look so... look at this
7: alumni yearbook. Here's Jeff's picture, and I ask you, is that or is that not the man who calls himself Vincent Wayne?
16: Darling, you're right. That Uh is Vincent Wayne. It it couldn't possibly be anyone else.
7: You see? I told you, Jerry. But, Pam. What?
16: Didn't you read the caption under the picture?
7: The caption? Why, no. Why?
16: Listen. Jeffrey Williams, class of 41, born June 12, 1920, married August 7, 1945, to Thelma Stone, class of 43. Thelma
7: Stone! I remember Pam, that's not not all. Well, go on. Died. Died?
16: Yes. Died March 18th, 1949. Pam, dear, Jeff Williams has been dead for over four years.
19: Good evening, Lloyd. Huh?
14: Evening, Thelma. Aren't you up later than usual?
19: No, Lloyd, it's just your home earlier than usual this evening. Ah,
14: yeah, well, well, I gotta watch that, because I was having a good time. I'm sure you were. A great time.
19: Who was she this evening? Same one?
14: Which one's the same one? Have a hard time keeping track. Must be a terrible problem for you. This one tonight, nice kid. hat check girl at the, uh, I forget the name of the place. Her name w- was, uh, um, well, it doesn't make any difference. She said she wouldn't go out with me anymore anyway.
19: You better go up to bed,
14: Lloyd. Yeah, guess I've been around you too long, Thelma. Knowing you, I thought she'd be interested in a rich man. Well,
19: perhaps she's not interested in you because you're married.
14: Now, that's possible, I suppose. But I tell them all I'm married, and I tell them all about you, Thel. Everything. Oh, well, I'll find someone else.
19: It'll be a waste of time, Lloyd.
14: A waste of time? You don't know the girl I've got in mind, Thel.
19: You've already given me more than sufficient grounds for a divorce, if and when you make it worth
14: my while to get one. Good Lord, Thelma, don't you have one ounce of pride in your whole body? I've shamed you and humiliated you. as your
19: patient and dutiful wife, I want to be compensated for that shame and humiliation. It's worth $250,000 to me now. price has gone up since the last time, huh? And it'll go up the longer you wait. Thelma, you'll
14: never get a cent out of me. We'll go on as we have been. I'm comfortable.
19: I don't mind. You're the one who
14: really wants the divorce. And I'm going to get one.
19: Hmm? On what grounds?
14: I don't know. But you'll give them to me, Phil. A woman who hates a man as much as you hate me can't go on posing as a model wife forever. You'll make a slip someday, and I'll have my divorce. For nothing.
19: Good night, Lloyd. Sweet dreams.
18: <laughs> <laughs> Hello? Yes.
3: Selma, this is
7: Pam North, uh, Pam Saunders, when I was in college. Uh, do you remember me?
18: Pam, well, of
19: course I remember.
7: Well, uh, look, Selma, uh, could my husband and I come over and see you? We could be there in a
19: few minutes. Well, all right.
3: Uh, I want to tell you about something that's happened, something very curious.
7: on this Vincent Wayne was Jeff, Thelma. I was absolutely convinced of it.
16: But then we saw his picture in an alumni yearbook and read that he was dead.
7: Yes, Jeff was killed in an accident. What kind of an
19: accident? An airplane crash. Everybody on the plane, 30 people were killed.
16: I see. Uh, Mrs. Rogers, is, uh, is there any possibility that your first husband could have survived without your knowing it? I, I was thinking if, if he were suffering from amnesia... But well, or... There's no
19: chance of that, Mr. North. I identified Jeff's body after the crash.
16: No? Mm. Well, I guess that's that. Uh, We'd better go, Pam. It's pretty late.
7: Yes. Well, good night, Thelma. Good night, Pam. I'm sorry we bothered you, but this whole thing was so strange, I had to tell you about it. Well, I'm glad
19: you did, Pam. Good night, Mr.
16: North. Uh, Good night, Mrs. Rogers. Wayne.
19: Wayne. Vincent Wayne, Here.
16: dark all this time thinking about that Wayne guy.
7: I'm sorry, Jerry. I, I know it's silly, but I just can't get him out of my mind.
16: Hmm. <laughs> but you never laid awake this long thinking about me.
7: Mm, but you don't happen to look like someone who's been dead for four and a half years.
16: Well, I should hope not.
7: Jerry. Hmm? What's the name of that newspaper friend of yours, uh, the one who works on the Chronicle?
16: Hmm. You mean, uh, Pete, uh, Dillon on the copy desk?
7: Yes. I- I'm going go see him in the morning. Why? Well, I I want him to dig into the files and, and get me the stories about that airplane crash. I want to know just a little more about how Jeff Williams died.
14: Mr. Wayne? Yes? My name is Rogers, Lloyd Rogers. I'd like to talk to you, if I may. What about Thelma. May I come in? Well, thank you. What do you mean you want to talk to me about Thelma? Who's Thelma? The name means nothing to you? No. It should. Why? You're married to her. Married to... <laughs> There's some mistake, Mr. Rogers. My wife's name is Constance. Oh, you mean you have two wives? Well, that must be rather complicated. as well as illegal. What are you talking about? Stop bluffing your name isn't Vincent Wayne any more than mine. you your Jeff Williams. Now look. Now you I... look. I've seen pictures of you and I overheard a woman named Pam North tell Thelma she recognized you. Then I heard Thelma make a phone call and put down the phone mumbling Jeff. She obviously telephoned here, recognized your oh, voice. That's crazy?
17: Now listen, there was a woman named North who mistook me for someone named Jeff Williams. It happened in a restaurant the other night. But as for anyone named Thelma, I've never even heard of her, much less been married to her.
14: You were married to her and you still are. Get out of here. I don't know how or why you made everyone think you'd been killed in that plane crash, Williams, and I don't care. What I do care about is that legally Thelma is still your wife. Get out. Now listen to me, Williams. Are you getting out or do I have to throw you out? All right, Williams, I'm going. But I'll be back
3: with the police. <laughs>
16: I suppose I should have made more sense out of what you said, but I'm still not sure what we're going back to see Thelma Rogers for. Well,
7: I'm not either, I guess. But after reading the clippings Pete Dillon got out of the files for me, I'm positive Vincent Wayne is Jeff Williams.
16: Well, I don't see what those stories about the plane crash prove.
7: Well, they prove Thelma was lying. The stories said any identification of the victims after the plane crashed and burned was impossible.
16: Okay, so Thelma was lying. That doesn't oh, prove Oh, no, that... Jerry. What?
7: Look, that crowd down there in the alley. I wonder what's the matter.
16: Well, oh, let's go down and see.
7: Jerry, look who's here. Well,
16: for the love of Bill Wigan. Come on. Uh, excuse me. Right. Pardon us, please. Oh, excuse me. Uh, may we get through? Thank
7: you. Mm-hmm. Bill! Well,
14: Pam and Jerry, say, what are you doing
16: here? Oh,
7: why, we were... Oh, Bill, what... What happened to that man over
14: there? His body was dumped out of a window on the 10th floor. His body? Uh, Someone hoped to make it look like suicide, but the guy was dead before he went out the window.
7: Who is he, Bill?
14: Well, he's been identified as a man who lived in the building, a a man named Rogers, Lloyd Rogers. (laughs) Now, please, please, Mrs. Rogers, I, I know this is hard for you, but I must ask you a few questions.
19: I don't understand. Why are you so certain Lloyd was murdered?
14: The medical examiner could tell in several ways, Mrs. Rogers. For one thing, he sustained a blow on the head, a blow that was fatal, but which he couldn't have gotten in a fall.
19: But who would do such a thing?
14: Well, that's my job to find out. But first, I'd like to know why you told Mr. and Mrs. North that you'd positively identified your first husband's body after the plane crash in which he was killed.
19: Well, what has that to do with this?
14: Well, it's possible, from what Mr. and Mrs. North have told me, that this Vincent Wayne is your first
16: husband. Oh, that's
7: ridiculous. Well, how can you be so sure, Thelma, when you haven't seen Vincent Wayne? Well, I... uh...
16: Or have you seen him, Mrs. Rogers? No. He's being brought here to your apartment, Mrs. Rogers,
14: so if you'd be kind enough... Jeff is dead.
19: He was on that plane. It crashed. Everyone, including Jeff, was killed.
14: Did you actually see him get on the plane, Mrs. Rogers? What
7: are you getting at? Lieutenant Weigand means that a name on a passenger list and a person on a plane are two different things. What is this? What are you trying to do?
19: Lloyd's been killed, but all you can do is talk about Jeff and this fantastic idea that he may still be alive.
16: Lieutenant, well, Stevens and Blake have Vincent Wayne out here
14: and Mrs. Wayne. All right, we'll be right out. Okay. Vincent Wayne's here, Mrs. Rogers. Uh, will you step in the next room with me? Oh, uh, Pam, Jerry. There he is. Well, Thelma. Hello,
17: Jeff.
7: Oh, Vincent.
17: Now, take it easy, honey. Is this the woman I'm supposed to have been married to, Lieutenant?
7: You know perfectly well it is.
17: I've never seen this woman before
14: in my life. Now, look, Mr. Wayne. Wait
19: a minute. There's one way to settle this once and for all.
14: Oh, Mrs. Rogers.
19: Jeff had a scar, a bad scar from a shrapnel wound on his right forearm. Mm
14: Mm-hmm. Will you pull up your sleeve, Mr. Wayne? I... Very well.
7: Oh, Jerry, darling, look. Yeah. His arm doesn't have a mark
3: on it.
17: Well, now are you satisfied?
19: The resemblance is really incredible. I can understand why you were so certain Mr. Wayne was Jeff Penn, but without a scar on his arm, he couldn't be.
17: I
7: I guess we owe you an apology, Mr. Wayne.
14: Looks that way, Mrs. North. Donahue, have someone take Mr. Wayne and his wife home. Okay, Lieutenant. That won't be necessary, Lieutenant. Come along,
17: Connie. I'll ring for the elevator. All right. We'll catch a cab. I'm not
18: going home with you, Vincent. What? Why not? Because there's nothing to go back to. Connie. This is why we've been living a day at a time, and today was the last one you think that I'm... Jeff Williams. Yes, I know you are. Maybe you and Thelma Rogers fooled them, the police, Mr. and Mrs. North. But you didn't fool me. I could tell you a line. I don't know much about you, but I know enough to know that.
17: Okay, Connie.
18: So goodbye, Jeff.
17: Connie.
18: I'm sorry you didn't Keep your promise about not letting anything happen to us.
17: What do you think I was trying to do? I don't know. But whatever it was, it wasn't right. What should I have done? Told the truth? Yes. And given that lieutenant a good reason to think I might have killed Lloyd Rogers to keep him from exposing me? Did you kill him? No.
18: Then what were you afraid of?
17: People can be sent to prison for bigamy. Oh, Connie, please listen to me. I didn't want it this way. I didn't plan it like this.
18: Does anyone?
17: You can't imagine what it was like with Thelma. It wasn't just that she wanted money, more money than I had or could possibly make. She gave nothing in return, and yet she could make me feel if I did just a little more for her, that'd be it. That I'd have a wife and not just a woman who shared my home.
18: Jeff, it doesn't make any... Please,
17: Connie, listen. And One day I found myself trying to figure out a way to embezzle money from the company I worked for. I realized what would happen to me if I didn't get away from her. But I couldn't divorce her, and she wouldn't divorce me. Jeff,
18: can't you understand? I don't care now. It doesn't make any difference. Not now. You're telling me this three years too late. Connie,
17: I love you, and you still love me. Vincent Wayne or Jeff Williams, I'm still the same man I was an hour ago.
18: No, you're not. When you walked out that room a moment ago, you changed. Everything changed. Here's the elevator.
17: I'm not taking it. So I decided to run away. Just disappear.
14: Go on, Williams. How'd you get out of that plane crash alive? I wasn't on the plane.
17: I had a ticket. My name was on the passenger list, but just before it took off, I found out that Thelma knew where I was going, so I got off. When I read it had crashed and I was listed as one of the victims, I changed my name to Vincent Wayne. You fool. You
19: spineless
14: idiot. Now, take it easy, Mrs. Rogers.
19: Why did you have to come back here and ruin everything? You always did have as much backbone as a slug. Well, you've cost me Lloyd's money, but you've just sent yourself to the electric chair.
14: How do you figure that, Mrs. Rogers? He killed Lloyd. That's not true.
19: It is. How do you know, Thelma? Because I was here in the apartment in the next room when he killed him. I
16: didn't kill him. You said before that you didn't get home until after your husband was dead.
19: And that was the first you knew of his death. That was a lie. I got home just a few minutes before Lloyd died. I heard him arguing with someone. I realized it was Jeff. Lloyd was trying to persuade him to admit publicly that he was really my husband.
14: To give him grounds for an annulment of your marriage? Yes. I didn't kill Lloyd Rogers, Lieutenant. I was here, yes. It's taking a long time to get the truth out of you, Williams. All right, but you're
17: getting it now, all of it. I was here, Rogers and I argued, but I left. You left after you beat Lloyd with a poker and pushed his body out of the window.
14: Oh, you saw the murder, Mrs. Rogers. What do you mean? From the next room through a closed door, you saw Williams pick up the poker, strike your husband, then push him out the window.
19: Well, no, I... I didn't actually see it.
14: Oh, yes, you did, Mrs. Rogers, but not from the other room. From in here. You saw the whole thing because you killed him.
7: She no, was... I... How do you know, Bill?
14: Because she knows something that even the medical examiner I don't know. That Lloyd Rogers was beaten to death with a poker. Bill. Huh? She's getting away, Bill.
7: Stop her. She
14: must have gone down this hallway. Come on. She'll... It
7: must lead to the kitchen. Well,
14: she can't get out that way. There, there isn't a back door.
7: Bill, Jerry, look at the window. What? Stay away from me. Stay away.
14: She's going to try to jump to the roof of the next building. Now don't be a fool, Missus Rogers. Stay away. You can't make that jump, Missus Rogers.
16: Selma, please. There she goes, Bill.
14: <laughs> Good Lord.
7: Oh, Jerry. Come away
16: from the window pane. Don't look down there. <laughs>
7: Jerry, do you know where the. Jerry, what are you laughing at? I was
16: looking for something in the closet, and look what I found.
7: Why, oh, that's one of my old school yearbooks.
16: Yeah, you know, the one for the year you graduated from high school. Oh, let me see. Oh, some of these pictures are a riot. Look at look at this one of the girls' club.
7: Oh, my goodness. I haven't looked at this in years. Oh, there's Donna Peterson.
16: <laughs> What's she doing now? Haunting houses?
7: <laughs> she was pretty awful looking, wasn't she? Yeah.
16: Oh, but here's my favorite. Where? Uh, look, look the, the babe in the first row. Third from the right. Here. Oh, that one? <laughs> oh, what a goon. Who is she, Pam?
7: Well, if you'll read the caption, Jerry, you'll see that the girl in the first row, third from the right, that goon, as you call her, is me.
16: Uh-oh.
20: Pam and Jerry are sure to have more exciting adventures next week Listen in, won't you? There's always mystery well sprinkled with humor on Mr. and Mrs. North This is the United States Armed Forces Radio Service.
0: and radio are usually portrayed as funny bumbling characters but some fat men were quite brilliant our next show is the exception to the bumbling fat man his name is nero wolf and he fancies orchids and fine dining he never leaves his home but he solves all the cases that come across his doorstep his faithful assistant archie goodwin does all the hard work going to the scene of the crime, interviewing witnesses, and collecting evidence. But it is Mr. Wolfe who sees the links between the evidence and people and brings everyone together to... Well, look, you're going to have to see for yourself. From the NBC Blue Network, October 27, 1950, it's the new adventures of Nero Wolfe in the case of the Careworn cuff.
21: My boss is the smartest and the stubbornest, The fattest and the laziest, the cleverest and the craziest, the most extravagant detective in the world, Nero Wolfe.
11: It's the transcribed adventure of The Case of the Careworn Cuff, with that brilliant, eccentric, private detective, orchid fancier, and gargantuan gourmet, Nero Wolfe, starring Sidney Greenstreet. (laughs) The place is near a wolf's office. At the moment, the world's greatest motionless detective is sitting in the chair, which was built especially to support his 300 pounds. His eyes are closed, and he's making sounds through his nose.
22: Archie. 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 Archie!
21: Ask Mr. Wolf, what is it? The phone, if you please, Mr. Goodwin. But it's on your desk, only eight and three quarter inches from your left elbow. All you have to do is lean forward. Found it, Archie. What do you think I am, an athlete? Hello. No, wrong number, mister. I'm sorry, Mr. Wolf, if that old phone awakened you.
22: Wrong number, and I was not asleep. I was merely uh, concentrating. On what? We're out of work. There's nothing to concentrate on. May have escaped your errant attention, Archie. but There are other subjects for thought besides murder.
21: Mm-hmm. Sure, blondes. And blondes. You're right at that, brunettes. Pooey. That's not a nice thing to say about any girl, even if she does happen to be a brunette. Archie. Yes, sir? Go away. You annoy me. Suppose I did. Who'd get your beer for you? Fritz. Tonight happens to be Fritz's night off. However, you can always get your beer for yourself. Don't be an idiot. There are exactly 23 steps between here and the kitchen.
22: As you very well know, I abominate strenuous physical activity. 23
21: steps times 2 is 46. You could walk very slow.
22: Nonsense. Now that you mention it... <clears throat> uh, I happen to be mildly
3: thirsty,
21: Archie. Would you? Now that I mention it, you'd better let the beer go for tonight. Why? Our stock is running low. You mean careless? I've been careful because something else is also running low. What? Money? Fertile sticks, there's plenty in the bank. Sure, but very little of it is yours. Mr. Wolf. do you remember that batch of orchids you bought last week? Of
22: course I do. Magnificent and very rare specimens.
21: I got a magnificent bill for him this morning, too. It was uh, large? It was large. Mm -hmm. Confound it, Archie. I shall have to do some work. You turned down half a dozen cases in the last few weeks. One of them may still require me. Most of them hired other detectives. However, there is a Mr. Wenceslas who might still be in need. His problem is what? As I remember, he's being followed by midgets. (laughs) He wanted you to do something about it. Not, Not that he minded the midgets so much. It was the elephants they were riding.
22: The man needs a psychiatrist,
21: not a detective. Anyone else? I can check my files, but I don't think... Ha ha! Saved by the bell. Another cliche like that, and I shall Answer the phone yourself? Assassinate. You see what it
3: is. Okay.
21: Hello. Yes, Mr. Wolf is in. Yes, he'll be in. He always is. What? But hmm. that was a Mr. Charles Porter. He was in a hurry. He's on his way over right now. Should be here in ten minutes. Prospective client, I trust? A thousand dollars worth of prospective client. Splendid! Archie might be. Okay, but, uh, look, I'm not sure you're gonna accept his offer. Indeed, what does he want me to do for his paltry fee? That's the point. If I heard him right, he wants you to do nothing. The door, Archie? Yes, sir.
3: I hear it.
20: Mr. Porter? Naturally, I'm Charles Porter. Who else would I be?
21: It's a large field. Uh, never mind. Come on in. I'm Archie Goodwin. Where is Wolf? Mr. Wolf is in here. Mr. Wolf, this is Mr. Porter. Good evening. Fat,
20: aren't you?
22: It's moderately noticeable. Out to your chair for Mr. Porter.
20: Don't bother. I'm too impatient to sit. When I have business to take care of, I take care of it quickly. Very well. Send him out of the room. Mr. Goodwin,
22: nonsense. He's my assistant. He remains. I don't like it. Archie, show Mr.
20: Porter out. Now, wait. There's no need to get temperamental. Perhaps I'm a little abrupt. Rude. I'm a worried man. And impatient. You're wasting time, Mr. Porter. I suppose I am. The reason I came to you... Young man, what are you doing with that notebook? Getting ready to make marks in it. But, no... Mr. Wolfe, you have a client named Dorothy Spencer. Have I? There's no need to be coy about it. I happen to know. Then you know. I want you to drop her. Drop her? Refuse to handle her case. Close the books on her. You know what I mean. Why should I? The girl has no money. I have. That doesn't answer my question. Perhaps this will. It appear to be a small package of dollar bills. It happens to be a thousand dollars. Archie, will you? I will.
21: It is a thousand dollars.
22: Thank you, Mr. Porter. Yes. You're paying me a thousand dollars in order that I refuse to act for Miss
20: Spencer. Nothing more. That's right. What does she suspect you of? I said nothing about. Well, that is. You must know that as well as I do. Possibly. Nevertheless, what does she suspect you of? Of uh, being a blackmailer. Whereas your occupation really is. I'm a musician. Pianist, I'm appearing nightly at the Windsor Hotel.
22: Archie, have you made out a receipt for Mr. Porter? Yep. Give it to him and show him to the door.
20: Okay. Mr. Porter? Mr. Wolfe, I want your assurance that the entire affair is definitely finished.
22: My association with Miss Spencer, you mean? You have my assurance that it is? You'll forgive a classical illusion.
20: The Carver. Thank you.
21: Good night. Mr. Wolf. I have a secret about Mr. Porter. He smells.
22: Some perfume or other. More important, his right coat cuff is more worn than his left cuff. And a cuff happens to be a musical term, meaning start again from the beginning.
21: Oh? Porter thought it meant finished.
0: Therefore, Mr.
22: Porter is a liar. His ignorance of common musical term indicates that
21: he's not a musician. The
22: worn right
21: coat cuff, that he is an office worker. That's kind of leaping to a deduction. But even if Porter's a liar, Mr. Wolf, there is something else. He, uh he paid you a thousand dollars to drop a client named Dorothy Spencer. Mr. Wolf, you never had a client with that name. Well, that's that. Dorothy Spencer is not in. Anyway, she's not answering her phone. Uh, Mr. Wolfe, I said... I know what you said. Is ah. that a comment? I'm worried.
22: Mr. Porter may have assumed erroneously that Dorothy Spencer had employed or was intending to employ me. That does
21: not explain why he lied about his occupation. Maybe he didn't lie. After all, your deductions could be wrong. Pheesh. Okay. Take care of that all right Now... Hello, uh, Windsor Hotel? Get me the manager's office. Thanks. Uh, could, could could you tell me if a Charles Porter plays the piano at... Which... Uh-huh.
23: She sounds blonde.
21: I see. Thanks a lot. What do you do after work? You... Oh, not so long. She goes home and beats her husband. That Porter, Archie. Bad news. He does play the piano at the Windsor in the move room. So where does that leave your deductions? Untouched, of course. Let me think. Hmm.
22: Yes, naturally.
21: Naturally what?
22: I came to the conclusion that Mr. Porter was an office worker. We have just discovered that Mr. Porter is not an office worker, therefore... You were wrong. I am never wrong. Therefore, the man who
21: was here is not Charles Porter. Mr. Wolf, do you think a man of your weight should climb out on a limb like that? Fiddlesticks, look up Porter in the phone book and call him. Okay. Take a second. Uh-huh. Archie, the phone company's best friend. <clears throat> yep, here he is. What do I ask him? Um,
22: there'll be no need to ask Mr. Porter anything. Just phone. You're the boss.
3: Yeah, I
21: have to say something to the guy. Hello. I'd like to speak to Charles Porter. So would you. Who is... Oh, Stephens, huh? Yeah, that's right, Archie. Oh... No, no, don't, don't, don't bother. Why I call it <laughs> a coincidence? Why? You know who that was? No. That was Sergeant Stebbins, Sergeant Pearly Stebbins. I might add, as though you didn't know that Stebbins happens to be a sergeant in homicide. Indeed. You expected this. I still don't know what your conversation was about. It was about Charles Porter, who maybe was a liar, but who isn't going to tell any more lies on account of he was just shot to death. <laughs>
23: Well, if it ain't Archie Goodwin. Come in, Goodwin. Thank you, Sergeant Stebbins. I've been expecting you. Oh, that's sweet. Did you say that, Pearly? <laughs> Why did you phone Porter? His right
21: coat cuff was more worn out than his left. So for that, you had to kill him? No. Nope, actually, I killed him because he didn't know his da couple.
23: Hey. Yeah, hey. He don't look good anymore, eh? Huh? Guys who stop bullets with their face never look good. Pearly, you've been robbed. I did. Hmm, that corpse is not Porter. (laughs) Now relax, Goodwin, relax. His fingerprints were on file and they check. His girlfriend says he's Porter. If he could get up and talk, he'd tell you he was Porter. And what makes you think he isn't? Well, because when he visited us earlier tonight, he looked different.
21: Not much, but... You said girlfriend?
23: Yes, I said girlfriend. She's in the next room mopping up. She kind of broke down when we brought her here. You brought her here? Now, don't tell me what her name is. Why shouldn't I? It's Spencer. Dorothy Spencer. Ooh, that's what I was afraid of. Sergeant, I... Oh. Ignore him. He comes with the
21: woodwork. His name is Goodwin, Miss Spencer. Archie Goodwin. Find what you were looking for? What
18: I was looking Somebody's for? Somebody's
21: gone through this place like a minor league hurricane. You? What
18: business is it of Of yours? mine?
21: None, maybe. On the other hand, Nero Wolfe might have other ideas. Matter of fact, I'm sure he'd have. Miss Spencer, why don't you go see him? The address is 601 West 35th Street.
18: I don't see why... You want
21: your boyfriend's murderer found, don't you? Now, listen, Goodwin, the police are working on this. Sure, they'll see to it. Nobody harms a corpse. Goodbye, Miss Spencer. Don't forget that address, 601 West 35th Street. Believe it or not, you used to be a client of ours. Oh, Mr. Wolf, you're getting to be so brilliant, it's boring. (laughs) Fui. That is, um... All right, tonight you deserve it. I'll get you another can of beer. But this is the last one? What's your promise to do some exercise, like, uh, like maybe standing up and sitting down five minutes a day? Thank you. <laughs> and why should I indulge in such idiotic behavior? Oh, after a while, you might be able to see your shoes. I've already seen them. Oh, that was 20 years ago. Things have changed. No more buttons. Hey, that must be Dorothy Spencer.
22: Hmm, she's undoubtedly young and beautiful.
21: You deduce that from the way she pressed the buzzer? I deduce that from the gleam in your eye, bah. Bah, all you want. I'm going to keep that gleam shining. Hello, Miss Spencer. Come in.
0: Thank you. Mr. Wolf
21: Is the large sitting-down gentleman behind the desk? This is Dorothy Spencer, Mr. Wolfe. You will forgive
22: me not writing. It is due to a necessary conservation of energy rather than
21: rudeness. Archie, the chair. Sure. you are, Miss Spencer.
22: Thanks. Now then, Miss Spencer, have the police found anything but dust in Mr. Porter's closet? I... no. You were engaged to Mr. Porter? I was. That ring you're wearing he gave it you? Yes. May I see it?
18: Well, all right. Here.
22: Thank you. Hmm, expensive. Very expensive. You may have it back. Miss Pencer, why are you marrying Charles Porter? I, I loved him. Fooey. Mr. Porter, according to Archie's description, was twice your age with considerably less than half your attractiveness. Love may perhaps be blind, but it is not astigmatic.
7: As I I don't know what you mean.
22: What were you searching for under the nose of the police?
7: Nothing. Nothing
22: H- at all. How did your fiance earn his money?
18: He played the piano
6: at the... Boy,
22: what he earned there in a year wouldn't begin to pay for the ring he gave you. Would you like to try again?
7: I don't know how he made his money.
22: I suggest that you do. I suggest that he earned money by the same method that he induced you to consider marrying him. Blackmail. Why was he blackmailing you? Old
18: letters I'd written when I was too young to know any better.
22: Your motives for murdering Porter would be twofold then. Recovery blackmail material and the avoidance of marriage to a man you dislike.
13: I didn't kill Charles.
22: Your no doorbell, Archie. Get Miss Spencer into the kitchen. Once.
21: Must be the police. Yeah, let's go, Miss Spencer. Right through that door.
22: And stay there until I call
21: you. Front door, Archie. Now, Mr. Wolfe, do I know Dorothy Spencer's here? You know nothing. A simple role for you to play. Uh, I haven't got time to resent that insult right now, but wait until the next time you drop a collar button my soul if it isn't your old inspector kramer how is the
8: homicide department where's wolf big surprise
22: he's sitting mr wolf good evening inspector where's dorothy
8: spencer this
22: is not the bureau of missing persons the
8: district attorney would like to talk to her
22: i shall tell her so the next
8: time we meet that could be right now she's in this house i don't see her mind if i look around for myself
22: you have a search warrant
8: of course it uh, so happens, no, but, uh...
22: Archie, the inspector's leaving.
8: Okay, I'm leaving. I suppose by the time I get back with a warrant, she'll be in Hoboken.
22: Hoboken? Where's that?
23: Look, Wolf, you can go too far. One of these days, you won't be able to talk yourself out of a... I... Ah. Trail me to the door, Goodwin, to show what a good detective you are. Oh,
21: Inspector Kramer doesn't love us anymore.
22: Unfortunate. Archie, take Miss Spencer to a respectable hotel. Register her under an assumed name. She is to stay there until notified otherwise. Luckily, the good inspector neglected to inform us that she was the leading suspect in a murder case. Hence, we are not accessories after the fact, and I don't want her arrested for murder as yet.
21: Her beauty has won you over. Oh, you will then return here immediately. Okay. What are you going to be doing in the meanwhile?
22: I, Archie, shall be thinking. Archie?
20: No. No, not Archie.
22: Ah, our impatient and non-musical friend came in through the window. How are you, Mr... not Porter, of course.
20: Where's the girl?
22: Question is beginning to bore me. I don't know.
20: I think she's here.
22: So did the police. I might add that they were slightly closer to the truth. Incidentally, what makes you think she was Porter's accomplice? She must have been. Nonsense, she wasn't. Porter was blackmailing her, just as he was blackmailing you. In her case, it was letters. In yours, a previous criminal record, perhaps, that your employers might be interested in.
20: I want to know where she is. Maybe this would help you remember
22: Good heavens, don't point a pistol at me. It annoys me. Ah, the police, I should think, opened the door for them like a good fellow. Oh, no. I'm leaving. But if I don't find that girl, I'll be back. Knock the blasted thing down if it isn't open.
8: All right, well, I've got the search warrant.
22: Also, no doubt, a fine tooth comb. Bah. By the way, Inspector. All right,
8: boys, cover the house. All right, Inspector. Well, yeah, what did you want?
22: As your men go through the house, will you have one of them shut the back window? I've just had a burglar, and I suspect he left it open. Unless the matter is attended to, the house might be filled with <laughs> fresh
12: air. Well, yeah, what's the matter with that?
22: Fresh air, deadly poison. It clogs the lungs. And may I point out that the warrant you're clutching in your hot little hand is not a lease on the house. Finish your search quickly, if you please, and then... Uh... <laughs> Why not try hobo?
21: So I just missed the inspector, huh? You did? That I can stand. I'm sorry about the burglar, though. Perhaps we can arrange to have you meet him in the morning. He left his calling card with name and address on it?
22: He dropped his handkerchief here on my desk. Oh. Hmm, it's a handkerchief. It smells. So it does. But um all of our unknown friends' clothes carry the odor. Therefore Yeah? You will go out immediately to the nearest drugstore store, buy a specimen of every cake of soap manufactured in this country.
3: Mr. wolf?
11: You're still?
21: No. I never realized just how many different brands of soap are made in this country. You should listen to the radio more often. So far, we've sniffed at 37 cakes. None of them smell like porter. Uh, let's see. 38. Hey.
22: Let me have it, Archie. Yes, these soap. Ah, it's labeled orchid ovals. I should say basically mislabeled. Orchids have no odor. Our task for the evening is finished. Why? All we know is the guy
21: washes with a basely mislabeled soap.
22: No, the odor would not have been so persistent in that case. Unquestionably, our visitor works for a soap company that makes orchid ovals. Every employee of a plant in which perfume in large quantities
21: is used inevitably carries the odor on his clothes. Oh. And you already deduced he works in an office. Uh Uh-huh. Ah, I I go see him in the morning. You do? You know, Mr. Wolf, with hiring rooms for girls and paying visits to a perfume factory, I'm beginning to feel like a maiden aunt.
22: No one would ever mistake you for a maiden
21: aunt, Archie. Thanks. Is that another deduction? Maiden aunts
22: rarely need a shave. <laughs>
7: A moment, please.
17: Oh, can I do anything for you, sir? Yeah. That is, uh,
21: let's postpone that question and slip in another one. I'm, I'm looking for one of your office people. He's uh, in his 40s, 5'10", brown hair and eyes, speaks in a sharp, quick voice. He
7: and... owes you money, too. Uh, who owes me money? Mr. Wheeler, the man you were describing. He owes everybody money. In spite of the fact that he's office manager and makes lots and lots of money. Mu- How much does he owe you?
21: Hmm? Oh, not, a, not an awful lot. It won't break me if I don't get it. Is he in yet?
7: Well, he was, but he went home. He was sort of sick. Sort of. Mm, he got a phone call from somebody and rushed out. Oh,
21: too bad. Well, i better scram. Well, you
7: didn't answer my question yet. I'm off at five. My name's Gwen. Goodbye.
22: Wolf speaking.
21: Archie here. Our unknown's name is Wheeler. He left the office this morning sick after he got a mysterious phone call.
22: Bad, probably... Get to Dorothy Spencer at once and bring her here.
21: Right. I'm at Wheeler's house now. Thought I'd better check. His
16: wife's here, too.
22: Blonde?
16: Uh-huh. How could you tell?
22: That you smirk in your voice. Get out of there fast and don't stop to console Mrs. Wheeler.
3: Nine oh eight.
21: Room 909. Miss Dorothy Spencer. Huh. Nobody home.
20: Shut that door behind you, good woman. Uh, never mind pulling triggers. I'll shut it. Oh, Archie. I would prefer silence.
21: Keep your hands high, Goodwin. It's unhealthy. All the blood had run into my head.
11: Archie, he murdered Charles.
21: He did. Taught, Mr. Wheeler. You really shouldn't have. It's against so long. Get into the bathroom, both of you. I already shaved.
7: I phoned him. I thought maybe he had my letters.
20: Porter couldn't keep his mouth shut about his other victim. He was going to force Dorothy to marry him. Did you find his material, Wheeler? Yes, in an office. He read it as a front. It's all burned. And why all the melodrama? You know about me, so does she. I can't trust anyone. Get into the bathroom, I said. Look, let's not lose our heads about this. Get moving, Goodwin. I like it here. All right, then. Here is where you'll get it.
21: (laughs) Hey, wait, wait, wait a minute. Something's wrong. I got shot and Wheeler fell down. I shot him, Goodwin. Stebbins.
23: Dear Sergeant Stebbins. Oh, you little flat-footed angel. (laughs) It's lucky for you my flat feet got staked out here in time. Just
21: for that, I'll buy you a pair of arch supports for your next birthday, but... I'm beginning not to believe this. You had it all figured out? Well,
23: not exactly. Well, that is... Uh Ah, Wolf sent you here. Well, he kind of phoned in and suggested one of us shoot down here and do some rescue work. (laughs) That old devil. Hey, you're not kidding. (laughs) What are you laughing about? (laughs) Wolf wasn't sure whether you'd need rescuing from Wheeler or... (laughs) Stop killing yourself with your own jokes. (laughs) Or whether Miss Spencer would need rescuing from you. (laughs)
22: You've been a very foolish
7: young woman, Miss
22: Spencer. I suggest that in the future you exercise more care in your
21: correspondence.
22: Oh,
7: I shall, Mr. Wolf, but how can I ever thank you?
21: Well, one one way would be to listen wide eyed while he explains how he solved the case. I have no intention. Oh, Wolf. come on, Mr. Wolf. Stop stalling. Please, mm. Mr. Wolf. Well,
22: uh, I'd be very happy to. As a matter of fact, I'd like to see anyone try to stop me. <laughs> <laughs> A man came to me, offered me a thousand dollars to drop a client I didn't have. Why? Because obviously he wished to direct my attention to that client. Me? You, Miss Spencer. Now then, he identified himself as Charles Porter, a musician. But I tested him and discovered that he knew nothing of music.
21: Ha! Ah, the Da Capo routine.
22: Precisely. Therefore, he was an imposter. His purpose. Yeah? To indicate by no means subtly that enmity existed between Porter and Dorothy Spencer. Huh? Thus, when Porter was found murdered, I would presumably be convinced that Dorothy Spencer, balked in her
21: effort to enlist my aid against Porter, had resorted to most foul and bloody murder. The most foul and bloody murder is very fancy, Dorothy, shows he likes you. Who... I
22: thereupon asked myself why should an unknown seek to convince me that Dorothy Spencer was Porter's murderer.
21: And you answered yourself?
22: One reason only, because he himself intended to murder Porter, as he did. For which peccadillo he has, thanks to Sergeant Stebbins' accuracy with a revolver, already paid with his own life. Quartier apt
21: demonstrandum. Latin for that's what you wanted to know.
7: I think you're wonderful,
22: Mr. Wolf. and I'm going to... Oh, be careful. Kiss you.
21: Hmm, Archie, Miss Spencer is a
22: very dangerous young woman.
21: Today I feel brave.
11: Do you, Archie?
21: Very brave. What are you doing tonight? Nothing. Let's do it together. Bah. Oh, is that, Mr. Wolfe? I said bah. Would you very
22: much mind conducting your romance
21: elsewhere? I would not.
22: And do so at once. I have a very important matter to attend to.
18: Goodbye, Mr. Wolf. Goodbye.
21: Night, sir. Very important.
22: Very important.
11: You have been listening to The New Adventures of Nero Wolf, starring Sidney Greenstreet. Tonight's transcribed story was based on the characters created by Rex Stout, produced and directed by J. Donald Wilson. In the cast were Lamont Johnson as Archie Goodwin and Jane Webb, Peter Leeds, Bill Johnstone and Wilms Herbert. Next week at this same time Nero Wolfe and Archie will bring you The Case of the Dear Dead Lady. Don Stanley speaking. <laughs>
22: This is Chester William Bendix Riley. The Man Called X follows on NBC.
0: And that will do it for our broadcasting day. Please join us again next time on WOTR, your old-time radio station on the Internet. WOTR is produced by JNR Productions, which is solely responsible for its content. Music is provided by the YouTube Audio Library and Dan Lebowitz. My name is John Richardson.